Good morning and welcome to Wanda's Picks, a black arts and cultural program of the African Sisters Media Network. And uh, we're real excited to have on the air um, our brother Jalil Muntakim. Good morning. How are you?
And we have a lot of comrades presently um, in prison, uh, particularly uh, Dr. Matula Shakur, that who need to be released because they are terminally ill, not to mention Mumi Abu-Jamal. And we, uh, we just lost uh, one of our freedom fighters, um, brother um, Shaka or Albert Woodfox, who just made his transition um, this month as well. So, or the, or was it July? It's been this season. So, um, I think I think that's all the things we want to talk about, right? <laughs> <laughs> all we want to talk about, all we want to talk about. I think that's all we want to talk about. I, I, I agree. No. Um, um, also, we got to always uh, big up uh, our comrade and, and brother, uh, the longest held prisoner in the United States, our, our comrade Rochelle McGee. You know, he's also um, oh, his, yes, his, yes, yes. Immediately, immediately. Uh, yes, so Michelle, we, yes, thank you. We're the bars. There's uh, uh, Imam Jamil Alameen. Uh, there's Kamal uh, 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 Siddiqui. There's uh, mm-hmm. a host of our uh, still in prison that we're fighting for release. Uh, the Jericho Movement, uh, the Northeast, Co- Northeast Coalition for Political Prisoners, and many other uh, comrades out there are fighting for recognize that political prisoners is part of our movement, continue to be part of our movement. We need to fight for them. As you fight for continued liberation and independence. Right, right, yeah, totally. So, um, so you're um, you're back in New York, and um, and you're so so busy, and uh, so we really really appreciate you joining us to talk about you know some of these things. So, where would you like to start? Would you like to start with um, we are our own liberators? Um, would you like to talk about the founding of the Jericho movement? Um, I know people want to find out, want to know what's going on with um, Recharge Genocide Tribunal uh, a year later, almost in a couple of months. So, um, and um, yes, yes. Well, let's 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 go through all three of them. First thing I like to okay. do, I like to uh, tell people that I am uh, pleased to let them know that the third edition of What We Are Liberators is now available. It's available at BlackDragonMME.com. That's one word. Uh, dot com and this is thirty dollars of course and this, it is a book that apparently still has resonance uh, with people today with young people today imagine the book was written over twenty one years ago uh, while I was inside and it still has some meaning some substantial meaning to what's going on today in our struggle and it, basically I look at the book as basically a, a manual a DIY a DIY DIY manual a do it yourself organizing manual. Uh, that's what it was intended for when I wrote it back in uh, 21 years ago. And apparently at this point in time, it seems to be resonating uh, with the degree for which our struggle is or where our struggle is uh, today. Young people are gravitating towards the book and uh, developing uh, uh, study groups. Study groups. What I hope that they do is organize study groups, read the book collectively as a group. Right? And it's, it's so doing more often than not, they will become a cadre, an organizing cadre. That is the intent of the book. Uh, and if we can do that and then we move forward and build these cadres across the country to organize what I call decolonization programs. The word decolonization, the idea of decolonization programs come from the original Black Panther Party and the Black Panther Party uh, survival programs, right? Survival pending revolution. I'm of the opinion that we need to build uh, decolonization programs as part of the revolution. And so that taking the idea for the Black Panther Party and taking it to where we are today in regards to our struggle. 
We have to figure out ways in which we can empower our community and using the resources that are available to us for our own independence. Uh, building the kind of program that decolonizes our thinking and our understanding of uh, being colonized as a nation within this country uh, for the last 400 years. And in, the, and in the process of decolonizing ourselves by building these decolonization programs, we'd be decolonizing ourselves in terms of becoming uh, more uh, uh, ready to, to take power, to understand the power, what power really is, and grasp our ability for our own destiny and our own determination for what we want to have for us as a people in this country moving forward. Uh, I am a, I am a, a new African. I identify myself as a new African. Right, and I believe in the necessity for us to begin moving and building towards our independence. Uh, we have lived in this country for the last 400 years, and we have been under navigating and, 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 and surviving a system of white supremacy for the last 400 years. And I'm of the opinion that the majority of us has been traumatized, traumatized by living and alienated in our own right by virtue of living in a system of white supremacy for the last 400 years. And as a result of that, many of us don't understand to what extent we have been traumatized. And that's the reason why I'm calling for us to decolonize ourselves, decolonize our thinking and our behavior in terms of what it is that we as a people are, who we are, one, and the first identifying ourselves because we have been identified by our enemies for the last 100 years rather than we identified ourselves, right? And also in terms of how do we divorce ourselves from a system of white supremacy, right? The system is not going to die in and of itself. It has to be removed. It has to be, uh, has to be uh, um, um, destroyed, uh, to use a, a more blunt word. Uh, and the way we do so is by, by uh, separating ourselves from the system, right? Because you, you can't have white supremacy if you have no one to dominate, right, to be supreme over. Right? And in this instance, uh, we are tired of being, being held in the confines or the conditions of white supremacy. And so for me, and my thinking, and what I'm uh, uh, promoting is the idea that we need to uh, build towards independence and liberation. And so this book, I think, uh, contributes to that, to that idea and to that goals and objective. Um, and by virtue of that, you know, I'm asking people to, uh, if they can, if they want to, if they desire to do so, uh, to get the book, check it out, uh, develop study groups, uh, and uh, build cadres, cadres for, for the exact purpose, for the specific purpose, of developing a decolonization programs. Now, the next uh, part. Uh. <laughs> Spirit, Spirit of Mandela. Yeah, in, in 2018, I put, I put out a proposal for a the time for having international jurors come back to the United States uh, to mm-hmm. review the conditions of uh, political prisoners. They had done so back in 1981 uh, when I had um, uh, promoted and, and, and developed a, a program as the first UN petition campaign to the United Nations uh, by uh, by prisoners. Uh, at that time, when I was in San Quentin, and then was transferred to uh, uh, New York, and continued to build that build that um, build that, uh, uh, that that campaign. And as a result of building that campaign, uh, we had called for international jurors to come to the United States, and they did, and they determined that political prisoners existed in the United States. Uh, that was back in 1981. So in 2018, I asked for the, for the international jurors to come back to the United States and uh, to review the condition of political prisoners. When I sent out the mm-hmm. proposal, I sent it to my comrade, um, Jihad Abdul-Mumet, 
who is now the chairman of the uh, National Jericho Movement. And he presented it to other people and uh, um, and and uh, to Comrade uh, Thikul Odinga and also to um, our brother uh, our Comrade uh, Matt Myers, who expanded my idea to have the international Jewish, yes, come back, but also deal with the issues of genocide, the question of genocide. And so for, for, uh, uh, for that period of time, until October of 2021, uh, we organized to have the jurors come back. And in October 2021, the jurors came to the United States. They held an international tribunal that was held at uh, Malcolm X, Betty Shabazz uh, Memorial Center in Harlem. Uh, that is the center. That's the area where uh, El Hasmi Shabazz was originally murdered. It was called the Audubon Ballroom back then. Uh, when mm-hmm. he was, when he was, and we held the the the, uh, the tribunal there in October 25th, uh, 2021. The international jurors determined that the United States was in fact guilty. I said this again: guilty of the charge of genocide against Black, Brown, and Indigenous people. And they were found guilty on five charges. Five charges were they found guilty on. And they were uh, resistance of political prisoners in the United States, mass incarceration, police killing of black, brown, and indigenous people, uh, um, uh, environmental uh, inequities, and uh, in, in, in our, 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 well, they basically contain black people, brown people, and indigenous people in this country, and also environmental racism. Uh, those were the issues that we raised. And they were found, the United States were found guilty uh, by the uh, uh, international jurists. At that time, the verdict was, uh, again, one that was presented to the United Nations. And what actually what we actually did was we accomplished what Paul Robeson, the great Paul Robeson, and uh, William Patterson and W.D. Du Bois attempted to do back in uh, December 17, 1951, when they first brought the charge of genocide. Uh, to the United Nations. Uh, what was uh, interesting about that at that time was that uh, the FBI attempted to prevent them from presenting those documents to the United Nations uh, back in 1951. Uh, they were they refused to allow uh, Paul Robeson to go to Geneva, and although William Patterson was in Geneva, they tried to prevent him from coming back. Unfortunately, the the the, the document that they submitted at that time, W.D. Du Bois. Uh, Paul Robeson and William Patterson uh, was not actually heard by Geneva, uh, by by the United Nations. It was recorded, but it was not heard. It was not reviewed. And so what we were able to do is have that done. We accomplished what they attempted to do back in 1951, and we got a verdict. We got a verdict of guilty of genocide. And there's another reason why I'm making the argument that we need to get away from these people. Right, because they've been committing and engaging in the practice of genocide against black, brown, and indigenous people for the last 400 years. Right, so we're going to wait for another 400 years to diminishing our people, for the killing and murdering and dehumanizing of our, our nation. No, I think it's time for us to stop. I think it's time for us to, to, to divorce ourselves from this system of genocide. And so we are telling the world, we are telling the world today uh, that we are tired that we are tired of this idea. Of integration and assimilation. It doesn't work, right? Uh, that's one of the issues that uh, even Martin Luther King, uh, in some of his last speeches, uh, particularly one of the Other America uh, speech, where he informed that he felt that perhaps what he was trying to do in terms of integrating to the system, assimilating to the system, was probably the wrong 
method, mm -hmm. wrong strategy, right? He is reconsidering the idea of integration and assimilation. Uh, how can you assimilate into a system of white supremacy, right, without being traumatized by that system? Uh, it's, it's impossible. And so for us, for many of us, uh, we find that if we no longer want to integrate. We no longer want to assimilate. Right? Assimilation is, is, is something that takes away from you. It doesn't give to you. Right? It takes away from you, your culture. It takes away from your heritage. It takes away from your legacy. It takes away from your progeny. Right? To assimilate, become part of something that you're not originally of. And so for us, uh, for many of us, particularly revolutionary nationalists in this country, we have decided for the most part it's time for us to separate, separate ourselves from a system that does not want us in the first place. Um, part of the process, what we're doing at this point in time, we have developed what we call the Spirit of Mandela uh, Coalition uh, and a committee, and we're moving towards what we call a people's senate. That's one level of, uh, of our organizing. That's the next process of what we're moving towards, a people's senate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, last year it was just really, really wonderful um, tuning in to the um, uh, to to the um, uh, the different sessions of of the uh, tribunal. Um, it was just so exciting, um, you know, listening and and hearing, you know, after all of the information was in, you know, sort of, you know, how that was the verdict was, was determined. It was just so exciting. And, and um, I was wondering if you could give people the website where they can, can watch the, uh, the tribunal and, sure. and get connected to uh, some of these, um, uh, these organizations, these groups that are meeting, um, they're still meeting. There's some different uh, groups, action groups that were formed that I know, I think they're still meeting now. Sure. So the Spirit of Mandela, uh, Spirit of Mandela Coalition is still uh, meeting. The committee is still meeting. Uh, they uh, generally meet. Uh, the generally meet on uh, on Wednesdays, uh, but the uh, on every third Saturday of the month there is a uh, a public uh, meeting that anyone can get onto uh, to hear what we have been doing and what we uh, intend to do going forward. Uh, they go to spiritmandela.org. SpiritMandelaOneWord.org, or you can, uh, for learning information about the tribunal, you can go to Tribunal2021.com, uh, or you can go to YouTube and type in International Tribunal 2021, and you'll find many of the uh, tribunal uh, um, hearings that, that 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 are posted on on YouTube, uh, or you can go to the to the tribunal uh, um, uh, website and you can find some of the uh, um, the uh, tribunal hearings as well, and get up on, uh, catch up on what we are able to achieve. Um, the, the people said it. What we're trying to do now is is organize um, progressive community across the country to understand that uh, we need to develop a new government, a new form of government. We cannot longer live in a system that has been uh, identified and and found guilty of committing genocide against our people. Uh, we need to figure out new ways to to to, be, to govern ourselves uh, from the system that has been misgoverned uh, by the issues of white supremacy and and the conditions of of of, of individual, structural, and uh, institutional racism that we have to navigate or have been navigating and surviving for the last 400 years, uh, for Native Americans to be 500 years, and so it, it's time for us to, to really consider uh, how we want to be governed 
and by who we want to be governed. There's a lot more that I can say about that, but uh, I, I think that at this point in time, uh, it's important for the people to try to catch up to, for those who don't know, do not understand, uh, to learn more about this work that we're doing. Uh, it is intensive. It is uh, uh, labor-intensive. It is uh, uh, extremely important in regards to not only for ourselves, but for people around the world. Uh, I like to make this the caveat to, to that when I say people around the world. Uh, I have been in, in, in Zoom meetings uh, with uh, some of our progressive uh, uh, revolutionaries uh, in different parts of the world. Uh, and um, one of the things I made point with them is that their freedom is based upon our freedom, right? I made it explicitly clear, right? One of the things that Ed Hodge and Sabbath taught us was that as long as we keep our struggle within the, the, the realms of civil rights, then our enemy will have the opportunity to define what they mean, what is meant by civil rights. Because they're the ones who will basically give up or take away uh, what is civil rights, right? But when we take our mm-hmm. struggle to the international community and make it an issue of human rights, then it comes out to the hands of it's out of the hands of this, this government, this racist government. Uh, we now be able to take control of the narrative of what our struggle is about by bringing it into the international community and make it an issue of human rights, inalienable human rights. It cannot be dictated or turned uh, by the colonial government or the neo-colonial government or uh, by any other institution that's not part of the struggle for liberation and independence. And so for us, our struggle from now on, going forward, there's no more question of civil rights. Or let's put it this way. In as much as the question of civil rights, there's a question of human rights, right? Uh, we have to demand uh, uh, our humanity be, be noted, not only here in the United States, but uh, throughout the world. And so our comrades on the international uh, 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 arena are getting an understanding of what our struggle is here in the United States. Uh, I will be having a a, um, a, a, uh, a webinar uh, with some comrades uh, uh, with Venezuela. Uh, and this should be on the uh, September 14th, September 14th. And it will be uh, uh, open for anyone who wants to, to get on board uh, to watch this, this webinar with our comrades uh, uh, in Venezuela. Uh, our sister uh, Charlotte uh, uh, um, will also be uh, uh, on the panel with me. Uh, uh, Mama Charlotte will be on the panel with me. Uh, and we will be, uh, be able to really uh, delve deeply into the idea of uniting our struggles, our struggles here in the United States and our struggles uh, in Latin America, uh, in South America, and building our base for which we can extend that uh, into the Caribbean, Africa, and Latin America. You know, one of the lessons, another lesson, I just want to, to I have so much to say, but one of the lessons is that uh, our greatest organizer that we ever had, as you may mention, uh, was a Messiah, uh, a Mark Messiah Garvey. Uh, that no one has ever been able to uh, organize as he had, right? Uh, he organized black people in the United States, in the Caribbean, in Latin America, mm-hmm. in Africa, and also in England, right? Uh, yeah. The history was extraordinary in terms of his organizing. And we must in some ways replicate that and broaden it out into a, a larger uh, uh, family, family of uh, progressives and revolutionaries uh, in order to uh, reverse uh, the kind of uh, um, trauma that we as people here in the United States and throughout the world have suffered as a result of white supremacy. So we are uh, we engaged in this movement. Uh, this building is growing, and we are calling for our people uh, across the country 
to learn more about what we're doing and how we're doing it and enjoying. Yeah. yeah. I want to, I want to um, uh, ask a couple of questions. Um, I was, I was thinking when you were talking about, uh, you know, that is human rights violations rather uh, than civil rights because civil rights, you know, are bound by the definition of what it means, you know, for that particular municipality, you know, or government, as opposed to human rights have an international standard. And with that in mind, particularly when you mention um, the Honorable Marcus Mosiah Garvey and and his organizing uh, skills and expertise, which are unmatched <laughs> to date, but uh, the um, uh, your organization uh, in the spirit of Mandela is certainly, um, you know, in that spirit, you know, following on, you know, what our ancestors, um, um, Mr. Uh, Patterson and um, Paul Robeson were doing, you know, when they, when they called um, for the tribunal. Um, I was wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit about reparations and because in this nation, um, the dehumanization of people of African descent of black people, particularly during that period uh, of, of legal enslavement, um, which continues now, you know, in the prison system, but the chattel slavery, um, you know, in, in the constitution, in the documents, we are as a people not fully human. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and and then if you want to parlay that into, I was also thinking about um, Marcus Garvey being the test case for COINTELPRO and, yeah. Uh, yeah, and how he was banned <laughs> from coming to this country um, and imprisoned, um, right. you know, and, and, you know, on false charges which is the whole idea sure. around COINTELPRO. Um, but I think it's kind of salient to what you're talking about right now. Let me let me just back up just a little bit, uh, uh, sister, and, uh, um, and give a more explanation of what we're talking about genocide and national liberation and independence. And then we'll talk uh, about uh, Marcus Garvey and him being uh, persecuted uh, by the system of white supremacy. One thing that's important for us to understand in regards to our fight for independence and liberation is that we have an inalienable right, an inalienable right uh, to uh, de- define ourselves and determine our own nationality of the Sunderland Nation. According to the Declaration of Human Rights, the Declaration of Human Rights, Article 15 states, number one, everyone has a right to a nationality, and number two, no one shall be arbitrarily deprived of his nationality nor denied the right to change his nationality. Now, that's a human right. That's a declaration of human rights, okay? And so we are doing that. We are defining ourselves and defining our nationality, right, based upon our human rights. Remember I said, we're taking ourselves to the human rights level. We're moving outside of civil rights, so we no longer want to be confined or defined uh, by our oppressor. Another thing that I want you to fully understand, people understand, is why we say genocide. We have to understand what the meaning, what the meaning and the wording of genocide is. So I like to read from my book, We Are Liberators, uh, what has been written about genocide. Here it says, in the present convention, genocide means any of the following as committed with the intent to destroy in whole or in part the national, ethnic, racial, or religious groups, such as one, killing members of the group. We know they be killing us, right? Killing us across the country every day. Someone, a black person, brown person, indigenous person being murdered uh, by the police across the country. We may not hear about it, 
when it's happening every day. Two, causing serious body or mental harm to members of the group. We know they've been causing harm to our group. That's the reason why we have in our genocide, uh, in our, our, our international tribunal and, and the decision of the, of the international uh, uh, tribunal, uh, international jurors, was the fact that they were found guilty of uh, um, engaging in the practice of uh, inequitable, uh, uh, um, um, damn, what's the word I'm looking for? Inequitable um, um, health, health, health rights, health conditions. Uh, environmental racism, right, and in, inequitable, let me find this word here, oh, health, yeah, inequitable public health uh, inequities. Uh, as an example, uh, white people live twice as long as black people. Why is that possible? What, what, what has happened in this country that allows to have white people live twice as long as black people in this country, right? It's genocidal. Okay, let me go on. Delivery inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about is physical destruction whole or in part. We agree with that. Imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group, sterilization. They've been sterilizing our people and sterilizing our women for hundreds of years. Right now, there's a struggle going in, Ch- uh, 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 I think it was uh, uh Prison, where the guards or uh, the medical staff there was uh, uh, sterilizing uh, uh, women in prison uh, without their consent. We know that the Puerto Rican uh, women in Puerto Rico had gone through, uh, about 20 years ago, had gone through a whole uh, struggle behind the ideas of them being sterilized uh, without their consent. And it's also happening with Native Americans across the country as well. And uh, uh, prevent group, prevent, uh, imposing measures intended to prevent birth and forcibly transferring children of the group to another group, right? That's also part of the genocide. And we know they did that with Native Americans. Uh, they took the Natives, uh, young Native Americans, and, and gave them missionaries, right? Made them cut their hair, made them change their name, made them lose their language, right? That's genocidal. Right, but not only that, just we have contemporary days, uh, contemporary times today, when we consider the degree of black and brown children who are in foster care across this country, right? Predominantly black and brown people in foster care across this country. These are our kids. These are our babies. But what it also tells us, it tells us what they've done to our families, destroying families by various other means. Right? They have all these kids in foster care, right? So that is part of the genocidal issue. Now, lastly, in regards to the genocide. Genocide can be found uh, guilty of the charge, right, by one, right, by engaging in genocide, by conspiracy to commit genocide, by direct and public incitement to commit genocide, uh, attempt to commit genocide, and complicity in genocide. Now, when we understand that, we also know that the United States is a treaty party to the, to the International Convention of 1948 on, on the prevention of genocide. If you go to Go to uh, 18 U.S.C. 1091. This is, this is a federal law here, right? 18 U.S.C. 1091, you will find the United States has a genocide code on its book, on its book. But we know that they will not charge themselves with committing a genocide. They won't, okay? And so what we're, what we're considering doing is filing a lawsuit, a lawsuit, in the court, right, making the argument that the United States have been engaged in the practice of genocide, its own book, and they're violating their own law, right? So that's also part of our building this uh, the Senate, uh, this international, uh, this uh, uh, people Senate. Uh, it's going to be part of that that case that we're going to be building, uh, building towards and continuing fight. Now, again, we're using this as an organizing tool, 
right? Because we don't have any illusions that the United States is going to find itself guilty of commission of genocide, right? But we know that this is a method from which we have to bring these issues to the public. Why? Because there's a whiteout, right, on, on the charge of genocide, on the verdict of genocide. They're not talking about it in the news media. None of the news media is talking about this, right? It is historic. And they're not talking about it? Why? Because they lend to the idea that we have to engage in uh, our understanding of the system of white supremacy and what negative impact it has had on people of color in this country. All right, so that's where we're going forward in this thing. I hope people will go and study what this genocide convention and understand how it has impacted or what it means uh, to being get, have, have suffered genocide uh, in this country as we continue to do today. Now, in regards to market driving, right, it's important that people understand in the 1920s, a guy by the name of J. Echo Hoover was a agent of the FBI, and he targeted, he targeted Marcus Garvey uh, 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 as being a person that had needed to be removed from social order. Again, when we look at what Marcus Garvey was able to accomplish, we can see how white supremacy was threatened, was threatened. And therefore, the FBI, and there's some issues going on with the FBI today, as you hear in the news, now that the right wing is challenging the FBI because the FBI uh, uh, um, uh, raided uh, uh, that punk truck uh, to a house and uh, took some, some documents that he alleged that he was not supposed to have. All right? Now they're trying to they defund the FBI. They didn't want to defund the FBI. The FBI was engaged in calling terrible against black, brown, and indigenous people. But now that they're finding the FBI functioning in a capacity that is undermining their white supremacist agenda, now they want to defund the FBI. Come on, that's bullshit. Excuse me. That's um, um, a lot of uh, malarkey, okay? Let me use that word. That's a lot of malarkey. So, anyway, uh, uh, so uh, Marcus Garvey was, had came under the, um, uh, under the scrutiny of the FBI by J. Edward Hoover uh, right before he became the director of the FBI. Uh, and as, as part of COINTELPRO, we can make a direct correlation to um, what happened with uh, Marcus Garvey to uh, what's going on today in terms of COINTELPRO. Why? Because, because in COINTELPRO, there is one part of COINTELPRO that states to prevent the rise of a messiah who could unify and electrify the militant black nationalist movement. Malcolm X might have been such a messiah. He is the martyr of the movement today. That's the core telephone document. Prevent the rise of Messiah. J. Edgar Hoover viewed what was going on with Marcus Garvey as being that Messiah, right? Being that person who can galvanize a movement for national liberation and independence as Marcus Garvey was organizing. And that's usually why he became a target, right? And this is the reason why today uh, national organizations are uh, under Corinthian where they want to prevent the rise of what they call a messiah. Let me say one more thing about Quarantelpro, which is, is poignant for our understanding um, of how they operate to suppress and, and deny uh, struggle for national liberation independence. One of the things they, uh, uh, in the Pro document, stated that um, uh, we want to prevent, uh, wait, 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 uh, oh, prevent violence on the part of black nationalist groups. Through counterintelligence, it should be possible to pinpoint potential troublemakers and neutralize them 
before they exercise the potential for violence. Hold up now. Hold up. Let's, let's look at that a little closer now. They say they want to neutralize them before they exercise potential for violence. All right? That's what happened to mm-hmm. uh, Fred, Fred Yeah, neutralize Yes. And the word neutralize, it means to terminate, to exterminate, mm-hmm. to keep, right? That's what neutralize means. Yeah. So now you want to neutralize people before they even engage in the violent activity or in any in, in yeah. criminal uh, criminal activity. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And that's what they spread yeah. heaven. That's it to a lot of pastors, a lot of movement people uh, back in the, in the 60s and the 70s, right? Murdering them in the streets. Right? That's what they did, all right? And so mm-hmm. we know that they will do that. They know they will engage in this kind of nefarious, uh, uh, vile uh, uh, murdering uh, and the massacring of people. They have done it. They will continue to do it. This is their modus operandi, right, as far as I'm concerned, in terms of white supremacy. And so Marcus Garvey uh, did go to prison. Uh, they sent him to prison for a tax evasion or a tax code because they couldn't get it for no other reason. They had someone infiltrate his organization, right, in behalf of the FBI. That's what they continue to do today. That's what they did with the Black Panther Party, right, in very mm-hmm. organizations. They uh, inf- infiltrate their organizations and create a scenario in which a person can be prosecuted. And so Marcus Garvey was sent to Leavenworth. He spent time in Leavenworth, and then in 1925, I believe it was, uh, he was exiled. He was exiled from this country, right? I couldn't do anything else, mm-hmm. else with him. They didn't murder him at this time. Lucky for Marcus. Uh, they didn't murder him as they do uh, periodically from time to time to murder our leaders. Uh, and so Marcus Garvey was sent into exile. But as a result of that, uh, as a result of what he was able to do uh, in organizing, uh, they created this idea of what they call counterintelligence program, and they've used that ever since. Uh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Need to take a breath here for a moment. <sighs> let let all that kind of sink in. Um, you're coming out here to the Bay Area. Um, and uh, you're going to be having um, uh, some tours and, you know, getting together with your family because uh, you, you used to live here. Um, I'm really, you I'm really about- born, I was born in Oakland, born in Oakland, raised in San Francisco, went to high school in San Jose. So, yeah, the Bay Area is, is, is my original home hometown. There's no mm-hmm. doubt about that. And I got a lot of family mm-hmm. in the Bay so I'll be coming in. Uh, on Friday, uh, my cousin, uh, 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 Abbas Mutakim, Abbas will be having a, a program for his people, for his organization, people's uh, program, and I will be uh, um, presenting uh, at, at his program. They're having a, a, a formal anniversary and, and recognizing the Black August. So I'll be coming there. He's having me come out. And actually, I'll be visiting with a lot of my, my family who I have not seen in uh, decades. In decades, while I was in prison. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what part of San Francisco um, were you raised in? You said you were born in Oakland and raised in San Francisco. Yeah, I was born in Oakland. Born in uh, Kaiser Permanente Hospital, uh, October eighteenth, nineteen fifty-one. Yeah, at three forty-three a.m., my mom kicked me out. Kicked me out of my nice little cozy <laughs> home. <laughs> and. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I was raised in San Francisco. I went to a school in San Francisco, my elementary school in San Francisco. 
I lived in the Fillmore District. That's where we, I was raised at, in the Fillmore the original Fillmore District. I understand that it's not longer, no longer what I what I know that being had the, the the black mecca of uh, of the Bay Area. Uh, the Fillmore District is no longer there. Uh, mm-hmm. But I then I went to high school in San Jose, East Side, mm-hmm. East Side, San Jose. Yeah. Yeah. Oh wow. Wow. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful. So how do people find out? I'm, I I can't find that flyer. <laughs> how do people find out about the um, uh, the public program um, this weekend? Oh, well, I don't have the information readily available either. Uh, but I think they can go to uh, People's Program, uh, 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 People's Program in, in Oakland, and it should be uh, mm-hmm. on their website. Okay, I'll, I'll look at that. I'll look that up right now then. Excellent, excellent. Um, let's see. Have we covered everything? Um, let's talk a little bit more about um, about the Black Panther Party and uh, about Black August. Yes, very, very, very good. Very and, good. And, and the yeah. and the attraction, you know, your attraction to this particular movement, um, and to the point, you know, that um, you know you um, you're serving for the people. Thank you. Thank you for that. Black August, uh, as many know, uh, was originally started in uh, in California prison system. Uh, And it was a result of uh, comrades, uh, particularly and specifically the Black Guerrilla Family. A lot of people don't know that the Black Guerrilla Family came into existence because of the kind of racist terror that black prisoners was uh, uh, suffering in the California prison system. And it was necessary for them to organize themselves in defense against the white supremacists who, who basically ran a California prison at that time, the Aryan Brotherhood and the uh, neo-Nazis and the uh, racist uh, uh, prison guards. And so it was essential that these prisoners, black prisoners, organized themselves and began to protect themselves against that kind of racist onslaught that they were suffering in the prison system in California. And uh, after the, the death of... Um, of, um, of um, Qatari, uh, uh, Jeffrey Golden, Jeffrey Qatari Golden, uh, who had became succeeded and become the leader of some alleged, and I believe the leader of the Black Gorilla family at that time, after his death, uh, the brothers inside began to want to commemorate uh, not only the death of uh, 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 Qatari, but also the death of uh, Jonathan, Jonathan Jackson, who was killed on uh, October 7, 1970. And also our our old black dragon uh, comrade uh, George Jackson, who was murdered on October 21st, 1971. And with the three deaths uh, of Golden uh, 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 Qatari was uh, uh, was allowed to die in the prison yard uh, by medical neglect, guards neglect in uh, 1978. And as a result of these three deaths and many others, the brothers inside decided that they wanted to commemorate them. Uh, commemorate these these comrades, these heroes, and in doing so, they decided to also incorporate other things that had occurred during the month of August. And when they looked in uh, looked in this history, they saw that August was full full of uh, resistance, black resistance to white supremacy and capitalist imperialism. And so they incorporated this history into a system of uh, commemoration. And understanding that we are engaged in a struggle not only for our our, our our people but for ourselves individually, 
discipline, uh, for um, self-study, uh, and for uh, uh, really reflecting on uh, uh, our capacity to engage in struggle. And so Black August now, almost 50 years, 50 years old, and is recognized uh, across this country and several parts, uh, several parts of the world, people are, are recognizing and, and engaging in, in black studies. I mean, black, uh, uh, black office. It's an excellent, excellent, right. excellent uh, way of commemorating our comrades and, and reflecting on the nature of our struggle uh, for, for at least for at least for a month. Mm-hmm. Right, right, definitely. And earlier in our conversation, you mentioned um, some of the uh, political prisoners who have been in prison a very, very long time, and that's putting it lightly. And um, and so they're elders, um, you know, senior citizens, and yet they're still being held um, or captive by this government. Yes. And I was wondering if we could talk yes. a little bit more about about you know some of these persons and and give their names and let people know um, how they can get involved in in liberating them, which means um, I think you need to talk a little bit more about the Jericho movement that you uh, co-founded. Sure. Uh, Let me just, as succinctly as I possibly can, 1998, um, I decided to, actually it was 1996 when I originally sent out the letter uh, asking for the resurrecting of the Jericho uh, marches. Uh, Republican New Africa was originally having marches every year around the White House calling for the release of political prisoners. In 1996, they stopped doing it, and I didn't understand why. And so I felt, I felt that it needed to, to continue. And so I wrote a proposal uh, I sent out to my comrades, uh, particularly Sophia Atta Bokhari, uh, my dear sister, uh, and also um, uh, Baba Herman Ferguson. Uh, and, and they said, listen, you know, they came to visit me and they said, listen, you know, we can't do this within the time frame that you want to have done, but we think this is need to be done and we will organize it. So in 1998, about two years later, uh, we had the first march, uh, Jericho March on Washington, and we had comrades from all over the country attending that, uh, attending that march. Uh, even comrades come from Hawaii uh, came and attended that march uh, in 1998, and as a result of uh, that march, we resurrected the Jericho marches that was recently started with the uh, uh, Republican New Africa. Uh, we decided that we we're going to continue doing the kind of work uh, and build uh, what we call the National Jericho Movement. And National Jericho Movement has been existing or going on over 21 years now. Uh, and it's a premier, premier organization and has been fighting for it in support of political prisoners in the United States. Uh, and they continue to do so, do this work uh, uh, today. Uh, and so for that, uh, we need to really reflect on who are some of these political prisoners, as, for example, uh, Dr. Mutulu Shakur. Dr. Mutulu Shakur, at the age of 15, was part of the original uh, organizing for, for the uh, uh, Republic of Africa. Uh, he was engaged in the struggle uh, at um, Reverend Franklin's church in Detroit in 1968 uh, when they was raided by the police. And they fought back. And uh, uh, Dr. Mutulu Shakur, at 15 years old, was part of that development. And in fact, it's something that he saved a couple people's lives as a result of his heroism in, 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 that, in that struggle. Uh, afterwards, he became an organizer on various other levels and began to study acupuncture. Uh, as a result of him studying acupuncture, he developed a program 
for detoxing people with heroin addiction using acupuncture. And he organized the first uh, uh, National Black Acupuncture Association across the country. He eventually became a member of the Black Underground uh, as a result of his political work and uh, and uh, uh, was uh, eventually captured uh, for their alleged for a brunch robbery that um, uh, two, uh, uh, two or three um, uh, law enforcement agents uh, were killed. Uh, he was also alleged to have been involved with the, uh, the work of the Black Liberation Army and others uh, to uh, 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 liberate uh, Asada Shakur, right? And so now he's in prison. He's been in prison over 30 years, and uh, he's dying. He's in uh, uh, stage three or stage four cancer, uh, uh, bone, bone cancer, uh, melanoma. And uh, we're fighting for his to be granted relief from prison uh, for humanitarian reasons, a uh, compassionate release. And the judge who's still on the bench, the sentencing judge who is 90 years old, who is still on the bench, uh, halfway retired or something like that, refuses to grant uh, uh, Matulu, Dr. Matulu Shakur, a compassionate release. He has the capacity to do so. He has, he has the capacity to release him tomorrow if he wanted to, but he refuses to do so. Uh, they're trying to make sure that uh, uh, Dr. Shakur dies in prison, and we need to make sure that he does not. Okay, and that's a fight for for Dr. Shakur. Uh, very similarly, uh, we have a comrade, Veronica Barrow. Veronica was granted release from prison. Was granted release from prison. This was almost 10 years ago. Right? It was on his way out the door, out the front door, being escorted by the superintendent. And he got a call, superintendent got a call from Anthony Gonzalez, who was at that time the Attorney General of the United States. And he told the superintendent, do not release him. Do not release him. He's been in prison ever since. Right? Extending his sentence after the parole board had granted him release. Right, over 10 years, we're fighting for the release of Ronza Ball. Right, uh, uh, Siddiqui, uh, uh, Kamal Siddiqui, another comrade. Uh, he is the the, uh, the father of uh, um, a daughter of Osama Shakur, right? And the comrade has uh, been under scrutiny from the FBI and other law enforcement agents uh, for as long as Osama has been out of prison. And what they did, they put up Trump up charges because he would not assist them to capture Asada Shakur, right? He would not assist them when he captured Asada Shakur and put up trumped-up charges and put him back in prison. He's in prison today for trumped-up charges, right? This is the kind of nefarious, vile actions that we can expect from this government uh, in, in, in terms of trying to maintain a system and order of white supremacy. Right? Let's keep that fact. Let's keep that understood by everyone. This is what's going on here. Uh, we also have, uh, uh, many of us all know, our great uh, writer and journalist, uh, uh, um, um, uh, Mumia Abu-Jamal, right, who has been in prison and, and, and is alleged and that he's in prison for something that he did not do, right? Uh, we also have Iman Jamil Alameen, right, who has been in prison. A lot of people, some of our older guys, the older people know him as Rap Brown, right? Uh, he, even when he was a member of SNCC, before he became a member of the Black Panther Party for a short period of time, uh, Rap Brown, uh, uh, um, during, during the 60s, uh, was, had a law, had a law uh, named after him called the Rap Brown Law, that if you go to any city and give a presentation, give a speech, and as, and they, as a result of the speech, there's a riot, 
right? Then you'd be prohibited from going to those countries and going to those cities uh, again, called the Rap Brown Law. You can be charged with engaging uh, or inciting a riot. That's what they say, right? Uh, and so, um, Rap Brown, uh, uh, Jamal, uh, excuse me, Imam Jamil Alameen, uh was uh, sent to prison uh, for a uh, alleged killing of a police officer, of which another person already confessed to, has confessed to the police officer. So we know that Rap Brown, uh, Jamil Alameen, is not guilty of that charge, and they're holding him inside prison. And he's also suffering uh, from uh, 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 various, various uh, uh, illnesses, and he should be released in- immediately, immediately. Uh, and there's, there's many more. Lila Peltier, who is uh, under uh, uh, support by Jericho Movement. Uh, Lila Peltier uh, was a member of AIM, American, uh, in, uh, American Indian Movement. Uh, um, and it is alleged that he uh, killed two um, federal officers uh, in a raid uh, at Wounded Knee, right? I think it's in South Dakota, right, uh, some 30, 40 years ago, right? He's also suffering from, uh, from illnesses and should be granted compassionate release, if nothing more uh, than actual exoneration. Uh, uh, my understanding is that uh, several people who had refused to, to support him are now supporting his, his release. Uh, uh, and I'm talking about uh, personalities, uh, politicians, et cetera. Uh, he should be granted release as well, immediately granted release. And so there's a host of uh, comrades. There's a sister here from Rochester named uh, 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 Reverend uh, Joel Powell, uh, who was engaged in struggles in, in Rochester area, the place where I live now, the city of, uh, of, uh, um, of Frederick Douglass, and um, uh, for allegedly engaging some, some issues pertaining to uh, um, a police officer, right? Uh, and now she's in Bedford, Bedford uh, Prison uh, in, in New York, and she be, should be granted release as, as well. So we, we listen, the, the, the sort of, when you engage in, in, in fighting for our people, you can expect at some point in time that you can assume some degrees of scrutiny uh, by the, the authorities, uh, those who want to maintain a system of oppression and repression. Uh, Jericho movement has been, uh, uh, adamant in their fight uh, for the release of our comrades. They have, we have had some successes, and we will continue to have them for as long as we continue to fight. People need to get uh, go to JerichoMovement.com, JerichoMovement.org, and learn about our political prisoners and build the basis for taking support our uh, uh, continued fight for their release. <laughs> I want to let you know and let our audience know that um, your cousin um, Marcella sent me the flyer, and so for the People's Programs Community Learning, Black August, commemorating our martyrs and becoming our own liberators with you, um, Brother Jalil Mutakim, is uh, Friday, August 26, um, 2022, at 6 p.m., 95 Linden Street. That's in Oakland, tweet number one. 95 Linden Street, point number one. And I went to the website for um, people's programs, and this wasn't on it. Your book is there, but this isn't on it. So so anyway, great website. Definitely I encourage people to go check it out, and you can get on their mailing list. But the program is Friday, 6 p.m., 95 Linden Street. That's in West Oakland, suite number one. So that's going to be really exciting. Thank you. Thank you. 
Yeah. Oh, well, thank you so much for this wonderful preview conversation. It is just free willing and all just and I hope people, you know, get the third edition of your book and start organizing some study groups. We are our own liberators because I know in the past you've actually you've led people in study groups. I don't know um if you're going to do that again. Um and also back to the uh when you mentioned that um, there's going to be a, a webinar with you and Mama C and looking at organizing with um, uh, the Venezuelan community. And I was wondering, on September 14th, how do people get the details on that to register? Uh, as, soon as, we get the, as soon as we get the website up, uh, uh, the webinar uh, straight, uh, we will be uh, yeah. uh, promoting it, putting it out there on, on, the, uh, on the social media, on the social media platforms. Uh, it should be on the um, the Spirit of Mandela platform soon. Should be on the Jericho platform soon, and uh, we'll send it out to various other uh, uh, medium platforms. Uh, people's uh, people's uh, uh, a program should be on that platform, and, and various others. Uh, we'll we'll get it out there. Okay, sure. Well, once um once you have it ready, um I'll definitely put it on Wanda's picks. Um so um so anyway, folks, it it'll be available. Um in my picks for September, um, which is next month. Okay, awesome. Is there anything, uh, I know you have to jump off and, and go on to um, your next uh, appointment. Um, <laughs> we're like calling, like pushing it tight. Um, so um, closing remarks, um, you know, you want to leave us with as, as you jump over to um, this other next conversation. Sure, sure, I, I, I do. Uh, for all those who do not know or do not understand what we're trying to, trying to achieve, I ask you please go to uh, spiritmandela.org, learn as much as you possibly can of the work we're doing to building the, the People's Senate. But I also tell you, I w- w- request that you uh, get my book, A Study Folding on Front for the Liberation of the New African Nation. Uh, we're building these, uh, these uh, decolonization programs across the country, and we're linking them up into a network to build a front, a front for liberation of New Africa. Uh, this is what we need to do. Uh, the name, the term folding on, comes from, uh, uh, derives from the, uh, the term uh, folding, folding mo, right, which was the front for liberation of Mozambique uh, back in the late, late, in the 60s and late, uh, early 70s, uh, where they liberated themselves uh, uh, from the, I think it was the Portuguese, folding uh, mm-hmm. uh, And so what we're doing today is continuing in that practice and that, that understanding of our struggle. And we're going to build what we call Solinan, Front for Liberation of the New African Nation. It is well, it's that well written and uh, developed in, in the book. Read the book, understand the book, develop, new, develop decolonization programs, link up with other decolonization programs across the country, and for us to uh, really begin to realize that we have to build for ourselves, right? We cannot no longer mm-hmm. be dependent upon our oppressor to oppress us. Right, yes. <laughs> well, safe travels, Brother Mukakim. I look forward to meeting you, um, you know, in, in your in your flesh form <laughs> when you and you, um, as opposed to meeting you, you know, in your mind and spirit, because um, I was just going to come together when you are standing here, you know, in your in your place yeah. of, of incarnation, right? <laughs> You're coming back yes, to the land, right? That's what we talk about. That's right. This incarnation for this. Well, I won't go into the spiritual aspect of it, but yes, this is the one incarnation in which what we do today will be the permanent factor of what we're going to go in the future. 
uh, God willing. Right, definitely. All righty. Well, again, safe travels. Um, look forward to meeting you. And thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. Um, I really appreciate, you know, your generosity. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity, sis. I appreciate you. Be safe out there. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam. Fletcher's grandness, the heir to his big bandness, was a master arrived to forever lay out the blue wonderfulness of the orchestra, Duke Ellington, whose greatness transcends all trends. Duke told Max, don't let them call your music jazz, because they can make anything that. What prophecy, cold and true? Why, they can say what your boy, what's-his-name, Elevator G is playing, is that you did? But then, what's-his-name was the king of jazz? And what's the other dude was the king of swing? And we now up to in that alley, banging on them tin pans. They call it swing. But they meant a noun, not a verb. Never could get the verb in it. Remember all them ladies and men, masters and mistresses of the verbal thing? Ethel Waters in a blue, new American classical popular song. And Billy, who reached the deepest tear in our heart. And Ella, all flying off them wonderful bands who carried our hearts, our meaning in their songs. The royalty like Duke and the Count of Basie, the lady who made her alliance with the real American president, Mr. Young, and you know they swung. Bean, the mighty hawk, taught us all how Lewis sounded on another horn, and the cats in their band, Duke's people at the top of the steeple, Johnny Hodges, Harry Carney, Cootie Williams, Cat Anderson, Paul Gonzalez, Ben Webster, and other greats who morphed into another age. If the 20s was the jazz age, then the 30s, the Great Depression, people seemed like they got skinny. But the age of swing, from all those songs, the world was looking for love, but it seemed like there wasn't any. Goose stepping in Europe, pain in Spain. They was painting mustaches on the Mona Lisa and putting a commode in the museum. Had civilization stopped? My man Helene said they couldn't stop bebop, and they won't stop hip-hop. Bird blue, dizzy new. Max carried our original earth to this place where we grew. Bud smiled, and here come miles. There was a bee and a bop. It's just another beat, another bee and another act. 
where the is and the unis cohabit the same frame. But the sound was a verb, not a noun, unless you couldn't Congo style really get down our share shake. But then the could did, and then them original hipsters appeared with the Vance and the Baudio Rudy. Said you gotta have them black notes, actually they is blue. I want my fist flatted. And you gotta have the drum where we and the music come from. Dig, that word was the first I heard. It all can't be on paper. For the proper syncopation, you gotta have improvisation. You gonna take them tired chords and make our own songs, our own stories. Otherwise, it's too dull. It don't swing. It ain't hip. We said we wanted wild, crazy, frantic. We wanted it to be exactly like us. Gone from the square world or out to lunch. My man Symphony Sid from the jazz corner of the world. It sounded like there was never anything before us hip as Birdland and this lullaby where I first heard the divine one. Sassy say, you're not that kind of a boy. You're not that kind of a boy. You're not that kind of a boy for a girl like me. What? And we heard of Fats Navarro and Fat Girl and Kenny Clark and Coog and Long Tall Dexter Gordon and Stan Getz and Zoot Sims. We heard the hippest people in the world. But remember, when you go out, somebody's going to try to bring you back in. Bop was too hot, the anti-bop squad said. Too fast, too crazy. Crazy, we said. The counterattack was to bring it back. We all been out to lunch too long. Whether it was swing or bebop, Disney dream. If you wanted a cop, you had to hit the street. No road out of the jungle, that's 52nd Street. Where the Charleston hit the New York docks. 12th Avenue was a shock. From Angola to the gullahs in South Carolina, got the first thing smoke, went up to New York. Charleston, James P. wrote. Greet those who landed in the devil's northern house. Hell's Kitchen, to be exact. San Juan Hill, Monk and Benny Carter's home, where Lincoln Center sits still. That's right. He on the only money that ain't white. But what we was trying to say, when it got too hot, some folks tipped away from that street. I think it was the heat. Last scene heading west, their next address. It was cool, really cool. Some said, calm down. Miles said, get down. Stan heard, Clue, Budo, Jerry heard, Lee heard, John Lewis heard, Gil Evans heard, Pancho Haygood heard. They gave birth to the school, the real birth of the cool. When the memory of the hip starts to slip, the gorgeous blue, the funk we knew, they're going to bend their knees and raise it back from the mood indigo that flows out of the black. What was bad could be bad. Much, much better than that. That's spoke that. So when Cool started to fool with my man Jojo's soul, he went out and put the church in. Where the Negroes' eyes be rolling back in their head and start speaking some stuff ain't never been said. A dude named Buhena played them drums like he was insane. I'm from the blue continent of dark under your heartbeat. Dudes named Horace drugged the funky gospel into the joints, hollering, let me see what you do with your shovel. And the Holy Ghost popping his tambourine, chick-a-ching, razzle in the room. That's nasty when you bring Africa and the Lord in like that. He wanted a messengers from the Holy Ghost Mau Mau Baptist Church, and they got a message from Kenyon 125th Street. The University of Blakey, the Academy of, well, it might have seemed like that, but it really was this. Where you could dig Hank Mobley and listen nobly to the man who called the uncrowned king, Kenny Dorham. But always so many others came to fill up the space with names of that school, Clifford Brown, Lou Donaldson, Chrissy He, Donald Bird, Jack McLean, Lee Morgan, Benny Goldson, all the way to Billy Harper and Wynton Marcellus. With all that love, so the saving of the deep historical bonds, the blues, the ancient call and response from across the trees and through the woods so you know where I am and I wait for your response. Our blue life memory all the way back across the world. The zigzag of chance, the improv, 
And fix however to the mighty drum The rhythm of life What has no beat cannot stay What was called hard bop was something to wake us up again To the rhythm of ourselves Max and Brownie Along with Bruhena helped bring the fire back The post cool smoke fanned from the wings of the great bird But now the heavy motion would be by train We call that band of miles the Hydrogen Bomb and Switchblade Band. Paul and Red, Cannonball, the Funkus, Mad Philly Joe and Train, the monster with the horn. Actually, Miles' great band was but a preface to another awesome being, Trains, Coy Tyner, Jimmy Garrison, Elvin Jones. But Train had to pass through the sphere of Theolonius to get deep into the Mysterioso of the funk, leaving the world of the merely hip for the monkishly profound. Monk and Train at the five spot opens a new world of other than where you've been. Let me tell you, I was there. Train didn't even know the arrangements. He sounded like a stranger. But in a minute, Train was in it, and the whole building moved and pulled away. Little Rudy Tootie, jackieing in Monk's mood. Surround midnight, the new music came. We never was the same. By the time they got from the Bowery to Carnegie Hall, must have been time for something next stop new. Even a Pharaoh, an Ornette, an Albert, a Sun Ra fell by. They heard trains cry, monks blew inside. A new world welcomed those with ears to hear. That was um, uh, Billy Hart, and you know that voice, right? Amamu Amiri Baraka, and that was called... um, Oh, where did I write it? Oh my goodness. Um <laughs> uh yeah, um and I am like drawing a blank um on the title. Oh my gosh. Sorry y'all. <laughs> oh, this is my first show in a minute. Um yeah, I'll tell you in just a second. Oh man, wasn't that a wonderful conversation with our our brother Jalil Mutakim? Oh my goodness, you don't wanna miss uh, seeing him this Friday, um, uh, one of the people's programs, uh, 6 o'clock, 95 Linden Street, Suite 1, and uh, that was Knowledge of Self um, by Billy Hart. Billy Harper, sorry, not Billy Hart. Billy Hart is the drummer. Billy Harper. <laughs> yeah, um, wonderful, wonderful work featuring uh, you know outstanding cast of of collaborating artists and uh, that voice is none other than Amamu Amiri Baraka Ashe. Okay, so we are going to conclude our our show with um, a uh, Marcus Garvey special. Um, again, uh, Marcus Mosiah Garvey's birthday was August 17th, and there was some wonderful programs this past weekend. Hope you were able to make them. Rose House of Amin Ra um, had a program on Saturday last week. Hopefully you were able to catch that. And there was on Sunday, there was a program honoring um, um, our brother who is now an ancestor um, uh, and uh, yeah, um, just a second. Um, uh, yeah, um, Brother Shaka, um, Baba Shaka's memorial was last Sunday, 
and um, I'm sure it was really, really awesome. Wonderful fighter um, for our liberation as well, Brother Shaka, uh, Baba Shaka Athanen. Um, um, he was honored last week. So um, so anyway, like I said, um, I've got this um, tribute uh, to Marcus Garvey, and uh, it's from the archives, uh, 2011. And I've got two versions of it. I'm not sure which one is which. <laughs> so I am going to play the um, the first one because I'm thinking uh, the second one. I probably just said a few more words because it's not that much longer. <laughs> so, so anyway, so let me know what you think. And again, thank you so much for tuning in for another edition of Wanda's Picks. And Friday we're gonna have uh, a broadcast. Yeah, I know. I don't. I haven't been doing Fridays in a minute. Uh, we're gonna be speaking to um, uh, to Baba Malik Rahim, uh, co-founder of Common Ground Relief, first responder uh, to Hurricane Katrina. Um, disaster in the Gulf and uh, particularly out of New Orleans he's in the West Bank and uh, the 17th anniversary of Katrina is this weekend no not this week excuse me it's next week Monday the 29th wow 17 years right and then last year on the anniversary of Katrina there was another big storm and trees were falling down and knocking over power lines and people didn't have any clean water and it was like bad bad and then there was actually flooding too so in east louisiana um so um yeah and so i don't know if people have been following you know the rebuilding um and to see how things are now there and this is hurricane season and um yeah here there was a hbo film that is um, available now, and um, but Malik Rahim wasn't interviewed for it. It's like, oh, interesting. Uh, it's called Katrina's Children. So this is not a plug, but if you have HBO, you can check it out. See what what aspects of the story might be missing. Because if they didn't invite Malik Rahim to say anything, then I don't know how comprehensive this is. So anyway, haven't seen it, but that's what Malik told me. So we're going to be talking to him on Friday, and hopefully we'll be able to get some other folks to join us. Um, I have some calls out, so but I won't, I won't, I won't tell you who those people are until they say yes. <laughs> so I'm not sure what time we're going to be broadcasting. Um, it might be early our time, or it might be afternoon. So you just have to follow the show. Um, you know, just follow us, and then, you know, when we have a show, you will know. All righty, again, um, Marcus Garvey special, um, August 17th, 2011. For you, that's the Universal Negro Improvement Association. is an organization that seeks to unite into one solid body the 400 million Negroes of the world, the link of the 15 million Negroes of the United States of America, with the 20 million Negroes of the West Indies, the 40 million Negroes of South and Central America, with the 280 million Negroes of Africa, for the purpose of bettering our industrial, commercial, educational, social, and political conditions. As you are aware, the world in which we live today is divided into separate race groups and distinct nationalities. Each race and each nationality 
is endeavoring to work out its own destiny to the exclusion of other races and other nationalities. We hear the cry of England for the Englishman, of France for the Frenchman, of Germany for the German, of Ireland for the Irish, of Palestine for the Jew, of Japan for the Japanese, of China for the Chinese. We of the Universal Negro Movement Association are raising the cry of Africa for the Africans, those at home and those abroad. There are 400 million Africans in the world who have Negro blood coursing through their veins. And we believe that the time has come to unite these 400 million people for the one common purpose of bettering their condition. The great problem of the Negro for the last 500 years has been that of this unity. No one or no organization ever succeeded in uniting the Negro race. But within the last four years, the Universal Negro Movement Association has worked wonders in bringing together in one fold four million organized Negroes who are scattered in all parts of the world, being in the 48 states of the American Union, all the West Indian Islands, and the countries of South and Central America and Africa. These four million people are working to convert the rest of the 400 million scattered all over the world. And it is for this purpose that we are asking you to join our ranks and to do the best you can to help us to bring about an emancipated race. If anything praiseworthy is to be done, it must be done through unity. And it is for that reason that the Universal Negro Movement Association calls upon every Negro in the United States to rally to its standards. We want to unite the Negro race in this country. We want every Negro to work for one common object but of building a nation of his own on the great continent of Africa. But all Negroes all over the world are working for the establishment of a government in Africa means that it will be realized in another few years. We want the moral and financial support of every Negro to make the dream a possibility. Already, this organization has established itself in Liberia, West Africa, and is endeavoring to do all possible to develop that Negro country to become a great industrial and commercial commonwealth. Pioneers have been sent by this organization to Liberia, and they are now laying the foundations upon which the 400 million Negroes of the world will build. If you believe that the Negro has a soul, if you believe that the Negro is a man, if you believe the Negro was endowed with a senses commonly given to other men by the Creator, then you must acknowledge that what other men have done, Negroes can do. We want to build up cities, nations, governments, industries of our own in Africa, so that we'll be able to have a chance to rise from the lowest to the highest positions in the African Commonwealth. Good morning and welcome to Wanda Six, a black arts and culture program of the African Sisters Media Network. And that was the Honorable uh, Mosea Marcus Garvey, and a short version of a speech that he gave in 1921 about his organization, um, UNIA, the United Negro Improvement Association. And today we're going to be speaking to uh, several guests about the Honorable Mosea Marcus Garvey and Pan-Africanism and, and you know, what this wonderful man uh, did for our community um, then and now that continues to reverberate uh, in, our, in our culture. We are going to be speaking uh, first to um, Professor Obadashaka, and uh, while we wait for him to join us, um, I think I will play... Uh, a speech by uh, Malcolm X. Uh, his father was a follower of Marcus Garvey, and um, 
And this particular speech um, uh, is the one where people get the um, – uh, actually, no, maybe I'll do the one um, on Afri Afro-American history. Oh, that was a long one. <laughs> Trying to find one that's not too long. Um, yeah, I think I'll, I'll play the one um, from Detroit, um, By Any Means Necessary, while we wait for our next guest to join us. Oh, Dr. Sataka, how are you? Good morning, how are you? Hello? Dr. Sataka? Uh-oh. Hello? Hello? Oh, I'm not hearing you. Darn. Hello? So why don't you try calling me back? Hearing you, but I you're you're in the studio, but I'm not hearing you <laughs> for some reason. Because hmm. we're having a bad connection. <laughs> ah, Elder Freeman, how are you? Oh, I'm okay. Yeah. Um. Well, I know you're in the studio. I mean, you're early because <laughs> you were gonna be listening. Uh, but I'm having I'm not, I'm not having um I'm having any luck this morning so far. Hmm? Is Elder Freeman? Yeah, I know. I know. Oh, yeah, I said okay. Elder Freeman. Yeah. And um I know you're gonna be joining us a little later on, but while we wait for um our guests to, to call me back, uh, why don't you tell our audience about um about Marcus Garvey and, and his importance to our community, um uh both here in the Western hemisphere as well as throughout the Pan African diaspora. Who who was he and what is his importance? Well well I, I I'm going to try to do it real fast then. Marcus Garvey was born in Jamaica. He's from Jamaica. Uh, he started an organization. He traveled. He first he traveled from uh, Jamaica to uh, uh, around uh, uh, the, the Gulf of Mexico and stuff. He went to England, and he, and he, and he met some other uh, uh, black people from Africa and all different parts, and he seen that uh, there was a, uh, 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 that we had to unite. And he's seen that 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 uh, uh, to go back that that he had to start an organization. So he went back to Jamaica, started an organization, and uh, from there he came to the United States and started the uh, Universal Negro Improvement Association African Community League. And uh, uh, from there he raised, he got over 200 million uh, uh, black people in the United States to join. And and 200 more. So that's when you hear him say 400 million. He's talking about 400 million people around the world that didn't that didn't join and and became super and and uh, uh, supporters of his organization. Mm -hmm. Right, right, yeah, super. Well, thank you, um, Dr. Obadashaka has rejoined us, and uh, let me. Um... I'm gonna leave. <laughs> okay, all right. We'll talk to you a little bit. <laughs> Yeah. Ah, Doctor Deshaka, how are you? Okay, how you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I'm glad it's working this time. So let me uh, let me introduce our, our audience. Uh, tell tell them a little about you. Um, going to read your biographical summary. Is that the one you wanted me to share? Yeah, just briefly. Okay. Uh, Doctor Deshaka is an activist, scholar, renowned public speaker, professor, workshop leader, author, leader. Uh, organizer and visionary of exceptional influence who addresses audiences in the United States, Britain, France, and Africa. 
For 38 years, Dr. Tashaka was a professor at San Francisco State University, where he is now Professor Emeritus. Dr. Nathan Harris says, uh, Opa Tashaka is one of the key social philosophers um, in the Afro-American race today. End quote. The late Dr. Asa Hilliard, a great educator and scholar, said of Dr. Opa Tashaka, uh, he is one of the most powerful deep thinkers in the world today. Uh, when my family and I arrived in San Francisco in 1963, Over the Shaka was a young, powerful leader in the middle of the civil rights struggle. Since that time, he has been totally consistent as an uncompromising truth seeker, visionary organizer, and leader in African liberation in the United States and on the African continent. He has published newspapers. He has that organization. He has been and is a courageous activist, end quote. Dr. That's Phillips, good enough. That's okay. Good yeah. <laughs> yeah, you tell me uh, when we talked um, about uh, talking about um, most, uh, the Honorable Marcus Mosea um, uh, Marcus Garvey um, that that you know sort of he I guess laid the ground for your your work as as an activist and as an educator because of his organization. I wanted you to talk about uh, Marcus Garvey and his impact on you personally and in your work. Um, I, I chaired the San Francisco chapter of the Congress of Racial Equality between 1963 and 65 and was a member from 1960 to around 66. And in the course of that, we built the largest of the northern civil rights movements, putting 10,000 people in the streets to uh, fight economic apartheid because blacks were frozen and people of color out of jobs in the economy. So... We led marches, boycotts, things like that against supermarkets, department stores, banks. We gave birth to the free speech movement. Many of the troops that went to jail came from UC Berkeley, uh, as well as the black community in San Francisco. And we, we had a series of victories. We never lost a battle, and we busted open thousands of jobs for blacks and people of color. Uh, so uh, in 1963, a book came out on Marcus Garvey, um, and for many of us in the movement, we had not heard of Garvey before because of the historical disconnection in our history. Very often, we don't know uh, a lot about our past, and a lot had been done to uh, destroy Garvey's legacy. So in '63. Uh, this book, Black Moses, came out. It was written by a white man, Cronin. And, and in perspective, it wasn't a great book, but at that time it was all we knew. And we found out that here uh, a black man had uh, produced the kind of mass organization that was the strongest in the history of the U.S. and in the Western Hemisphere. So um, at, from that point on, Garvey became an influence. Now, what we were learning in the movement was the main influence. Malcolm was also an influence. But with Garvey, uh, particularly what was influential was his method of organizing. We were into organizing marches, boycotts, uh, organizing organizations, forming alliances and coalitions. But when it came to institution building, we didn't have an expertise in that. The Nation of Islam was pretty good at that. We weren't. And so Garvey provided a model for institution building because he had built not only the largest mass organization of blacks in the history of the U.S. in the 20th century or any time before that, 
but he had built a series of institutions, newspaper, uh, Black Cross organization that black women belonged to, uh, kind of a paramilitary organization, a series of businesses, and the Black Star Line. So um, the institutional uh, approach became important. And it w- would influence me and a number of us in the movement, particularly at the end of the Civil Rights Movement when I moved to form a group that's now called the Pan-African People's Organization where we built mass uh, independent black school where we marched about 5,000 black students out of the public schools in 1971 to form what is the African Children's Advanced Learning Center, which still operates today, and where we operated food program where we served 35,000 plates of food and to people who were hungry and clothing program and did African work, went to Africa and worked in villages and stuff. So the thing is, um, the institutional approach, Garvey also had a philosophy of economic self-reliance. We had learned in the movement in organizing in San Francisco and across the country, we basically built a movement without hardly any money. And we were not controlled by anyone, not by the white power structure, not by blacks who wanted us to sell out. We basically supported the interests of our people. But we realized we needed an economic base. Garvey provided a model for economic self-reliance. So when we moved to form what became Pan-African People's Organization, which in the initial period was Afro-American Institute, I was able to bring together people like Wesley Johnson, who owned uh, two nightclubs in the Fillmore and had set up a pharmacy for his son, Wesley Johnson, Jr. Um, Carlton Goodlett, who owned the Sun Reporter newspaper, the NAACP, Marcus Bookstore, a host of other groups, and they provided financing for financing our organization. We wanted to establish the principle that blacks would finance their own movement and then later bought a building called the Malcolm X Unity House where we ran projects, uh, programs, and held rallies and things like that. So uh, Garvey influenced economic self-reliance, and that wasn't just some idea. It was internalized. And then in terms of direction in the movement, we had entered the movement thinking that Myself and I think many others, you know, we wanted to support our people's struggle. The Montgomery bus boycott had been a real inspiration. First successful move to dismantle Southern-style political apartheid, and that inspired us. Um, But um, as we entered the movement, you know, we thought our leaders had the answer in terms of the long-term solutions for our people, and we realized that Many of them did not, and we began to question where the movement was going. I led the black nationalist movement within CORE, and Kwame Torre, the black nationalist movement within SNCC. And uh, over time, I, I began to, and a wing of the civil rights movement began to embrace Garveyism, which was the idea that Africans would probably return to Africa. So that was an influence. Now, Over time, I abandoned that idea. When I went to Africa, I realized that we had to Africanize this reality in the United States. But for a long time, that was a sustaining idea. So Garvey was like my first master, and Malcolm X was my second. And 
It wasn't somebody that I just studied. The first, in, in fact, when I would go to Harlem, we would have meetings of the core central committee meeting in Harlem, and I would go by Michelle's bookstore, which was a place that Malcolm frequented when he was alive. It was a the largest collection of black books in any black bookstore in the country. The books were stacked up to the wall. And every time I'd go in there, I'd ask for a copy of Philosophy and Opinions of Marcus Garvey. And finally, I was in there one uh, month, and Michaud had located volume one and two, $100. These were the first uh, 300 copies of Philosophy and Opinion that Amy Jack Garvey had published. Uh, while Garvey was in prison, and I paid $100 for those books. And at that time, $100 was a lot of money, and I was a broke civil rights organizer. So those those books are like Bibles. They sit in my study, and nobody's allowed to touch them. <laughs> and it's away from the sun, so the sun won't hit them. <laughs> so Garvey was more than a minor influence. He was a major influence. Now, over time, as I you know, develop my own approach in terms of organizing and in terms of philosophy, uh, I would say that I became a neo-Garveyite in that certain aspects of Garvey is still important to me, but I realized that we had to move to other levels of organizing in terms of changing this society. But Garvey remained and still remains a foundation figure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was wondering... Um if you could talk about, I mean, are are there anything, like, specific that, um, you know, quotes from Garvey from those those two volumes that you said you purchased, um, uh, you know, quite a while ago uh, that you might be able to share with us? And, and also I was wondering if you could talk about sort of the internationalist movement uh, and the, the Pan-African movement that, uh, Garvey is most known for the the red, black, and green flag, um, the the ship line that he founded, um, and 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 the first person to um, to be a victim of the COINTELPRO before it was called COINTELPRO. Yeah, well, I've done a lot of research on Garvey. Uh, there's a uh series of books written by uh, Tony Hill on Marcus Garvey, the Universal Negro Improvement Association. It's about probably nine volumes now. Each is over a thousand pages, and these are raw documents on Garvey's uh, impact in different parts of the world, the United States, the Caribbean, South America, Britain, Africa, Europe, and it's just raw data pulled from various files, newspaper reports. Uh, Garvey was trailed not only by the IBI, Internal Bureau of Investigation, that became the FBI, Federal Bureau of Investigation. J. Edgar Hoover was on his case from the beginning, but he was trailed by French intelligence, British intelligence, uh, Portuguese, and they were all collaborating because Garvey had an international presence. So and then there are a variety of studies on Garvey, including Amy Jock. She wrote a book on Garvey and Garveyism, which is a good book, and we corresponded with her. I have a letter uh, from her, which is quite interesting. She was a force in her own right, Garvey's second wife. Um, in terms of quotes, um, 
Garvey had many up you mighty race, you can accomplish what you will. He was a positive thinker. He was somebody who was trying to inspire blacks to uh, have a sense of self-confidence. He talked about black men having backbone, not wishbone, (laughs) encouraging black men to stand up and be strong. Um, he was a, he was like Malcolm in that both of them were prophetic. They had a gift, and so Garvey had made predictions at the end of World War One that World War Two would happen, and that the Japanese would play a major role in confronting Western powers, which was prophetic. I mean, that was not anything any any historian could foresee. So. And he called for the liberation of Africa and tried to make a beachhead in Africa. Um, when the Fifth Pan-African Congress was held in 1945 in Manchester, and I was honored to address the anniversary of the Fifth Pan-African Congress in Manchester uh, in 19, uh, uh, 2005. It's where I met my my wife. <laughs> Um, That was a nice little gift Mm -hmm. Um, Garvey was dead by then uh, And Du Bois was the honorary chair Of the uh, 5th Pan-African Congress Uh, Malcolm Nurse uh, Formerly known as George Padmore Was the principal organizer Kwame Nkrumah Who later would become president of Ghana uh, Assisted uh, George Padmore, and you had Jomo Kenyatta, who ended up being president of Kenya, uh, associated with the Mau Mau, but never really took part in it, present, and other leaders that would emerge as leaders of African independence movements. Garvey wasn't there, but Garvey's spirit was there, and Kwame Nkrumah, who was the most visionary leader that Africa produced among the independent African states in the 20th century, had stated that of all the books he had read, Philosophy and Opinions of Marcus Garvey had inspired him most. Uh, So uh, Garvey's spirit was there because this was no longer uh, an attempt to reform colonialism, that is to uh, get the colonial empires in Africa to make reforms and improve the living conditions of Africans, But this was a move for African independence, and that was what distinguished Garvey from Du Bois, in that Du Bois convened the second through the fourth Pan-African Congress, but they were essentially reform efforts. They were attempts to uh, modify colonialism. Du Bois believed that the talented tenth uh, would lead Africa, that is the educated Africans, would lead Africans around the world to liberation. He would later change his views on this. Um, So while Du Bois was there, and I think by then his views had advanced to the need for African independence, it was Garvey's spirit that was really driving that. And the Fifth Pan-African Congress, of all the assemblages that Africans had in the 20th century, was the most important because while the Africans who met there, many of them were labor leaders, they were grassroots uh, Africans coming from, in fact, Padmore had used the occasion of a labor meeting that Africans were having to then coincide that with his organization of the Fifth Pan-African Congress. So 
this meeting, though I think the people who participated could not, uh, in their wildest imaginations, guess that this would lead to um, the initiation of African independence movements with Nkrumah going back to Ghana and leading the first movement uh, outside of the Sudan uh, for African independence in the 20th century and successfully so, and then other African countries following. So Garvey's spirit uh, was there very much. And, uh, you know, when you study Garvey deeply, what you'll see is that his organization had a number of strengths. One of them was propaganda. Garvey was good at propaganda. His Negro world uh, is one of the three best newspapers that blacks have produced in the United States. Muhammad Speaks and the Black Panther newspaper are the other two. And it was the money-making arm for Garvey's organization, but more important, it spread the message for Garveyism. A man named Hubert Harrison has often not been given credit for the role he played in that. Hubert Harrison was a self-trained black intellectual who was the person that really inspired Garvey. Now, this is the thing to understand about Garvey. When Garvey came to the U.S., he was coming to meet with Booker T. Washington so he could replicate Tuskegee in uh, Jamaica. He wanted to take that model of Tuskegee University back to Jamaica. And uh, Booker T. Washington had died before Garvey got to the U.S. So Garvey began to move around the U.S. He tried to build an organization in New York. He made some interesting assessments of the strengths of black people that a lot of blacks in this country may not have been fully aware of. He saw how advanced blacks were in terms of organization. Um, but uh, Garvey was not able to connect with the masses of black people in the U.S., and he was ready to leave until he attended a Liberty League meeting held by Hubert Harrison. This was after the, at the end of World War One. And uh, Hubert Harrison had over a 1,000 people assembled in Harlem. And William Monroe Trotter, who uh, had also been an activist, uh, scholar, intellectual Harvard graduate who was a friend of Du Bois and an opponent of Booker T. Washington, attended that meeting. And so Garvey was allowed to speak. But what Garvey saw in that meeting was a spirit that he had not understood before. And this was the post-World War I uh, militant spirit of the anti-war spirit because blacks had come back, fought in World War I, and were being lynched and were being driven out of jobs. And you had these race riots where whites were attacking blacks and blacks were shooting back. And so what Garvey saw was what he called the new Negro. King would call the blacks who took part in the Montgomery bus boycott and the emerging consciousness in the civil rights movement as the new Negro. And so Garvey's, Garvey then was prepared to leave the U.S. because he had failed to really build an organization. But then he began to see the spirit of this African who had come back from World War I. And so then Garvey began to hold a series of rallies on it, uh, of his own. And so what's often not noted is that the rise of Garveyism rose on an anti-war sentiment. And that anti-war sentiment Garvey piped into by saying that never again would Africans fight for America or for Western powers. They would only fight for the freedom of Africa. So uh, Hubert Harrison, 
was the one who pointed Malcolm towards that spirit. He also inculcated into, uh, to Garvey this idea of race first, and uh, Garvey picked that up from him. Hubert Harrison was also the person who went in and took Garvey's newspaper and refined it into one of the best newspapers that we produced. Garvey would have these rambling articles that would go on for pages and pages, and Harrison reduced his space. He created a section for uh, book review, which had never happened in newspapers in this country. And then he would have news from around the world. Uh, Harrison claims that Garvey's red, black, and green flag was inspired by a flag of his. It wasn't red, black, and green, but the idea of the flag came from that. Garvey was also inspired by the Irish independence movement. Some black scholars don't like to mention this, but uh, Garvey had traveled uh, to Britain and in different parts of the Caribbean <laughs> prior to coming to the United States. And he saw that there was a commonality between the way the Irish were oppressed and the way Africans were oppressed. So Garvey's uh, title, Provisional President of Africa, was the same title that the Irish president used, Provisional President of Ireland. Garvey's hall, which was called Liberty Hall, was a term gained from the Irish who had Liberty Halls. These were the meeting places that Garvey had uh, for his organization. In terms of the government move on Garvey, uh, J. Edgar Hoover had kept a close eye on Garvey. First of all, Garvey's organizing in New York, and that's the center of U.S. capitalism. America has now become, at the end of World War I, it has really displaced uh, Britain as the foremost imperialist power. They are not yet exercising it, but Britain now owes debts to the U.S. The U.S. is a creditor nation. And so organizing inside uh, the heart of imperialism was, of course, going to draw attention to Garvey. Now, Garvey's strongest chapter was in Harlem. His second strongest was in Philadelphia, led by a man named Eason, who Malcolm's parents uh, worked with. Um, and then, but, but his strongest base was in the South. He had 75 chapters in Louisiana alone. Uh, that was the strongest base. That's often not recognized. So what happened is J. Edgar Hoover was watching Garvey and eventually got the district attorney of New York to charge Garvey with using the mails to defraud. The reason for that charge was that Garvey was then moving to become a U.S. citizen so he could stay here since this was his principal base. Uh, if they convicted him of using the mails to defraud, then that would be a crime of moral turpitude. That would deny him the opportunity to become a citizen of the United States. So these And these were trumped-up charges. Uh, he was being charged with defrauding black people. Garvey never pocketed a penny of money that came into the organization. He had some sloppy methods in terms of taking money that went to the Black Star Line and putting it into... Uh, the UNIA, the Universal Negro Improvement Association, he, he, had, he did things like that, but he, he was an honest person. And, in fact, of everybody charged, only uh, Garvey was convicted. And he made the mistake of defending himself and did a poor job. I mean, Garvey 
used this trial as a propaganda thing when, in fact, they, they had charges on him, and all he had to really do was establish the fact they were claiming that he had uh, misadvertised a uh, steamship that they were going to bring out, and it deliberately uh, you know, falsified what they were doing when, in fact, they had advertised a steamship line that was supposed to come out. It didn't come out at that time, and Garvey was in the Caribbean during that time. All he had to do was show... He wasn't a part of that. He didn't argue that in his court trial. He was convicted and then stayed out of prison for a while on appeal and then eventually was put into prison and then finally was pardoned on condition that he leave the country. And when that happened, then the UNIA began to fall apart because the Garvey movement was very much centered around him, and that was a weakness of the movement. It was a strength, and that he was a great organizer, great speaker, but it was a weakness. You know, when you you know a movement is centered around too much around one person, eliminate that person, the movement is going down, and that's what literally happened. Garvey went back to Jamaica, tried to organize there, then went to London, died there. He had asthma, and I think that the weather was not good for him. But overall, uh, his impact was powerful. Certainly, certainly. Uh, as you were talking, I was thinking about uh, when you said, uh, when you mentioned that the being against the war and, and, and African people's participation in the war was, you know, a key um, mobilizing uh, feature of, of his movement. I was thinking about Martin King and how against the Vietnam War, that was when the government uh, sort of seems like it set it into motion its mechanisms to to have them eliminated yeah except that it appears now there was more to that than that yeah that was part of it that uh king had when he made his riverside speech mm -hmm. a year to the date of that speech he was assassinated where he came out 100 percent against the war in vietnam and at that point johnson withdrew secret service protection king was given some protection against racist violence uh but it's clear now that the even greater reason for assassinating king was that king had like malcolm become a revolutionary king had become a nonviolent revolutionary because he had never given up nonviolence but he had concluded that the problem of facing uh this country was structural that the way the economy the way the political social system the educational system but particularly the economy was structured, designed to make the rich rich and the poor poor. He also saw that the values of this country were corrupt by the end of his life, something that Malcolm had realized much earlier. And so uh, King, by the end of his life, was addressing the issue of poverty. He died uh, in Memphis supporting garbage workers, and he was preparing a poor people's campaign uh, to Washington. And he said, that they would stay there until poverty was eliminated. Recent works on about King's assassination show that the government viewed that as a revolutionary threat, that if poor people, black people, people of color, gangs, because he had the support of the Blackstone Rangers that became the Blackstone P Nation, that if they camped out at Washington until poverty was ended, uh, there was no intention of ending it, and something would happen. So uh, the evidence is pretty clear 
that military intelligence and the mafia, the government contracted military intelligence and the mafia to assassinate King. There were two shooters. Uh, the first shot was to be fired by the mafia. If they missed, then military intelligence would take him out. They put the mafia in there so for a plausible deniability that if it was ever uncovered, they say organized crime did it. Well, if you look at the motives, organized crime had no reason to kill Mount, uh, King. King wasn't involved in anything that threatened them. Uh, so that 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 was the primary reason that um, King, you know, became a threat because he did he no longer supported the status quo. He wasn't just about us getting our rights within the system. He was about transforming the system, and that's why they've also tried to keep his image the same, I have a dream image, and not talk about the progression of King to a radical and to a revolutionary, which is pretty much where Malcolm ended up. Mm -hmm. And I would say this, that Garvey was viewed as a revolutionary in the international sense that he was calling for overturning colonialism and in that sense was viewed as the same kind of a threat internationally. And uh, so the Western powers combined against him. If you had uh, the UNIA newspaper, Negro World, if you were caught with it in South Africa, that was a prison sentence. Um, so across Africa, Malcolm uh, Garvey was uh, viewed as an inspirational force and as a threat by the colonial powers, as he was in this country. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, my next guest is um, not in the studio presently, so in, in closing I wanted to ask you if maybe you could, um, so when one thinks about how revolutionaries are formed or developed, I was wondering if you could maybe, um, you know, thinking about Garvey's early life and his work as a union organizer, you know, when he was, uh, in um, in Jamaica, I was wondering if you could maybe uh, sort of make some connection for those who are trying to um, internalize and 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 use the strengths of this man to 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 um, as guidance to to help them make their lives better, make their communities better, um, you know, change the circumstances they might be faced with presently. Yeah, Garvey was a skilled printer, and um, he uh, supported union strikes by uh, black printers in uh, Jamaica. And so um, he that indicates that he was siding with everyday black people, which was, of course, his great strength because he built a grassroots organization. He had every type of black person in it. He had a number of educated blacks he had you know, blacks who had come from the South who had been sharecropping in different parts of the Caribbean, you know, who had, who were still facing colonialism. Uh, so Garvey's um, activism was in part nurtured by that. Garvey's activism was also nurtured by reading. His father had a huge library. His father was well-read. He's a person that kept to himself. Garvey was self-educated <clears throat> the same way Malcolm was in prison. So what I'd say in, in terms of looking at Garvey today is the the, the best educator, uh, the, you know, the thing that will transform a person's consciousness more than anything is, first of all, their enemy and their people. 
and the lessons you learn in battle are the most important lessons. In the 60s, the thing that woke us up first wasn't Garvey, it wasn't Malcolm. It was the confrontations we had with the white power structure and the lessons we learned from our people and the awakening that occurred as a result of that. Without an awakening, no transformation is possible in terms of a political system. For myself, my awakening came uh, through the interaction with people uh, in the movement, particularly one person who woke me up. And literally an awakening is when you realize that your brain has been put on automatic pilot. Someone else is in control. And as someone who had gone through college and was in law school, I thought that, uh, and particularly I, I understood the government, and it took uh, a brother who was a cab driver, his name is Norman Brown, to teach me the ABCs of how the government worked. And for me to realize that I had been brainwashed and that what I had to do was to really hit the books to discover on a deeper level who my enemy was and who I am. So uh, transformation's key. Garvey had his transformation where he was sailing and suddenly asked, where is our king? Where is, where is our nation? Where is our army? You know, where are our people free? And that was his awakening. Malcolm had his where in prison he came to understand that he had an enemy but that he also had a great history, and it said it caused him to think. And the key thing about awakening is freeing your mind from mental incarceration or from intellectual lynching and freeing it so that you think for yourself, so you see the world and you see yourself through your own eyes. So that is the key thing about uh, Garvey. Garvey had a free mind. But is the key thing about any kind of transformation. Reading is key to that because you have to connect your past to your present. And freeing your mind is a part of that process of, you know, drawing from the best of the values of your past, the lessons of your past. But it's essentially a developing a philosophy, a thought pattern, an attitude pattern, a behavior pattern that is free of the control of your oppressors and gives you an idea of the society that you want to put in place of the one that has now got your people ground into the dust. And that was Garvey's thing. Garvey had vision. That was Malcolm's thing. That was also King's thing. That was Ella Baker's. That was a thing about a lot of our people. Uh, Geronimo Pratt, <clears throat> that was his thing, uh, a man who never compromised, came out of prison and uh, hadn't great. I mean, didn't, you know, guy, guy looked like he was the same age when he went in. I mean, this was a person who didn't come out bitter, who came out with a love for his people because he had undergone an awakening, you know what I mean? So uh, that's the key thing. And, and I think Garvey helped inspire that awakening among many other people. Well, thank you. Thank you so much um, for sharing with us this morning uh, about Marcus Garvey. And, um, yeah, if people are interested in, in finding out more about your work, uh, your books, the, uh, the organization that you founded, uh, is there a website they could visit? Yeah, they can go to O T S 
H A K A at SBC Global dot net or www dot over to shaka dot com www dot over to shaka dot com that's my website okay and uh, I have a number of books that I've written uh, the political legacy of Malcolm X the art of leadership volume one and two return to the African mother principle of male and female equality and the integration trap generation gap caused by a choice between two cultures. People can check those out, along with a number of speeches, videotapes, uh, CDs. All right, super. Well, thank you so much, and, and give our regard to your wife. Okay. All right, you take good care. Good talking to you. Nice talking to you, too. Peace and blessings. Mm-hmm. Okay, bye. Bye. Uh, now, for Tina, how are you? Blessed love. How are you doing, Wanda? Oh, I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, I was like, oh, Nefertina hasn't called in. Oh, <laughs> oh of course I'm yeah, going to call. Just, just called, just called your mom to say, oh, I was calling to get your number so we could call you, and then I saw your number, so that's awesome. Uh, so let me introduce you a little bit to our guest. Uh, I just want to let our audience know that Nefertina Abrams is one of our premier uh, filmmakers, uh, particularly um, really well-versed in telling our stories, the stories that we don't know, and and I, I consider her a scholar, and particularly around, you know, African history, the maroon history, um, particularly that, you know, in Jamaica and connecting that to the maroon uh, legacy here in the United States too, particularly, you know, in the South. Uh, Nervatina Abrams describes herself as a pan-African independent visual anthropologist in the tradition of Zora Neale Hurston. Uh, she says her life work is to learn and teach about the varied cultures of Africa and its diaspora. Uh, she wants to make documentaries that are informed by the African oral tradition. Her master's thesis at San Francisco State University centered on the African identity as it has been maintained by the Charleston Maroons of Jamaica, who consider themselves the Ashanti Pikni or children of Ashanti. Uh, she's traveled to Jamaica for several years researching their history and culture and will eventually produce a full-length documentary on the Jamaican Maroons and supply their museum with copies. Currently, she's working on a Ph.D. thesis which deals with repatriation of diaspora-born Africans back to the motherland. Uh, this research will also result in a full-length documentary. Um, so I think we should just jump right into it, uh, Nefertina. Uh and uh, why don't you talk to us about about your work and uh, and about Marcus Garvey, particularly his wives? Uh, we were talking a little bit yesterday about about mm-hmm. um, the women uh, in the UNIA and particularly mm-hmm. Garvey's wives and and their leadership uh, and role in the movement. I, I know when people look at I forgot to ask this of uh, Dr. Obadashaka, but when you think about Garvey, you think about you know, sort of like pomp and circumstance. I mean, he would like have on this, you know, really uh, regal um, sort of paraphernalia, you know, and um, mm-hmm. and they would march through Harlem and I don't know where else, but and you have this this really beautiful, uh, uh, I guess, processions, and and you know, yeah. both men and women looking really respectful and honorable, and and you just wanted to be like them. Similar, you know, to I think, um, you know, the Nation of Islam, you know, with the garments, the FOI, the MGT, and I I think I'm sure the Elijah Muhammad 
you know, is a child of Garvey as well as Nova Girardi, the that tradition. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, about the UNIA, about uh, Garvey and his wives. Yeah, sure. Um, definitely uh, Garvey, of course, is a super intellect. He believes in education above all things. Um, and that's self-education because a lot of times people privilege academic education. And don't get me wrong, I'm definitely an advocate of that as I've been through college myself and I'm still in college, so I definitely advocate that. But just like Garvey, um, you know, education is an ever-evolving thing and it isn't something that's like necessarily inside of one book or one facility or one structure, something that should encompass your life so anyone can educate themselves. And he was definitely an advocate of that. He saw that, um, you know, Africans in the Western Hemisphere, and when I say that I'm talking about African descendants as well, were degraded in many ways. Um, they were kept from education. It was, you know, illegal for, you know, enslaved Africans to read. You can be murdered for that. You could be tortured, have a limb or something cut off. Um, so, and, you know, um, our ancestors were maybe given one or two items of clothing to last the whole year. So um, we would have a bedraggled appearance as anybody would if you only have one set or two sets of clothes to last the whole year. So there were a lot of things that he observed, a lot of, you know, ill treatment, and I feel like his philosophy was founded around those things. Um, even in Jamaica, he, you know, his upbringing, um, he, his, his father actually, when you mentioned the Maroons, his father was a Maroon. Um, and Maroons are people who held on to their African identity and it became a liberating force, as it has in any, anywhere we were taken in slavery. Those of us who remembered who we were and, and did not accept um, the false identity that, um, the enslavers tried to subscribe, uh, fought, and won freedom in many cases, uh, like the Jamaican Maroons who forced the British to sign a treaty with them, giving them uh, their freedom. And so, um, or not even giving it to them, let me say acknowledging it, because they were basically forced to do it, so they weren't just like going to give it to them like a gift. So mm-hmm. Garvey was um, influenced by the Maroons, his father was a Maroon, and they remembered that they were Ashanti, and it's like we're Africans. Um, they even rejected Jamaican nationality. If you, the Maroons will tell you we're not Jamaican, we're Africans, and we're Ashanti specifically, and that's been proven. Those um, linkages have been proven uh, archaeologically and um, through a lot of research in different fields. And so I was caught up with in, in that, and at the same time that I was... Um, Working on the, my thesis for the Maroons, I also had a lifetime project, which is to produce a full-length documentary on the life of Marcus Garvey, really told from the perspective of um, him as a giant of Pan-Africanism because this society has kind of uh, uh, hidden that aspect of him. I mean, many don't realize that the, U, the uh, UNIA was the most successful Pan-African organization we've had to date. It was even larger than the civil rights movement, but that isn't something that's really taught, you know, for obvious reasons. Um, so Garvey definitely, his philosophy was formed by his early experiences um, 
even working in Jamaica as a um, apprentice to a local printer and then obtaining his own position and seeing the class shortage and seeing the um, inadequacy um, visited upon the poor. So his philosophy was um, formed around writing those wrongs, and he traveled to places like Costa Rica where he was um, on banana plantations. And he kind of he traveled, and by traveling, he saw that our condition, wherever we were in the world, uh, was one of degradation. So he started thinking of ways to address that, and that's what the UNIA became formed in. And uh, it initially started out in Jamaica, and um, it didn't receive as favorable a response, so he ended up coming to Harlem, as you had mentioned. And in Harlem, he found a favorable response. And it was truly a Pan-African organization because it had Africans from all over, all the islands, um, African-Americans definitely born in America, formed a large vanguard of the Garvey uh, UNIA movement. And what is noted is that it was a movement that uh, valued female as well as male leadership. You didn't find the conflict um, that that have been found in other movements in terms of uh, some might say sexism or um, issues where the contributions of black women are not valued or they're kind of erased, where you kind of don't, you're in the background. The UNIA didn't have that issue. Um, there were women in, you know, leadership positions throughout the UNIA, and um, definitely I would say that um, Amy Garvey, Amy Jacks Garvey, his second wife, was a definitely a driving force in the UNIA. In terms of his first wife, Amy Ashwood Garvey, their marriage didn't really last too long, and without getting into people's personal marital issues, um, there was some contention there. Um, she, however, should be recognized for her own Pan-African movement, um, which she traveled, you know, all throughout Africa. Um, she founded um, organizations to uplift African women in particular. Um, she was, uh, her peers were people like C.L.R. James, George Padmore, W.E.B. Du Bois. Congressman Clayton Powell, um, the president of Liberia, um, Tubman, President Kwame Nkrumah of Ghana, and, and just many others. She um, organized women's organizations in West Africa and the Caribbean and became a very important figure in the um, movement against racism in England. Um, she traced her roots back to the Ashanti. She was also from Jamaica. She traced her roots back to the Ashanti of Ghana as well. So um, she definitely deserves mention as far as in her own life being a, uh, I call her a womanist, some might say feminist, um, and a Pan-African um, leader. And I would suggest people do research on her and learn more about her in her own right. Um, Amy Jacks Garvey, I really can't be too much said about her. The second wife, uh, she not only um, helped to build up the UNIA along with her husband, Marcus Garvey, after his passing in 1940, 
she continued to struggle for um, black nationalism and liberation. Um, she wrote an outstanding piece called A Memorandum Corrected of, I'm sorry, Correlative of Africa, West Indies and the Americas, and she sent it to representatives of the United Nations um, asking them to adopt an African Freedom Charter. Um, she published her own book, Garvey and Garveyism, and two essays, Black Power in America and the Impact of Garvey in Africa and Jamaica. So um, she, you know, also made sure that his writings uh, were published and that his message continued to be disseminated um, beyond his physical life. So, um, you know, there really can't be enough said about Amy. Jack Garvey, in terms of Marcus Garvey, he's the leading figure, many would say he is the father of the repatriation movement to Africa. Um, it's a movement, though, that began before Garvey was born. That movement has been led by a desire within the first Africans who were taken from their homeland through the transatlantic slave trade, and that desire has been born in every descendant since. With the Haitian Revolution in 1804, that um, gave confidence to Africans born in America that they could overthrow white domination and rule themselves. So that increased the desire uh, and confidence of Africans born in America that they could return to Africa and they could rule themselves. Um, there was another aspect to the repatriation movement, and that was um, white fear of what should be done with the freed slaves. Like, if they're no longer slaves, what, what's going to be done with them? So then there was a recolonization effort, um, first by the British government, uh, to return Africans to see early on. That was in 1787. And then the American Colonization Society um, founded Liberia with repatriated former slaves in 1822. In terms of um, us leading that movement ourselves, uh, I would have to mention Paul Kufi. He was a free black and the first to repatriate black people to Africa in 1815. So, um, from this movement, you had a battle between those who said we should go back to Africa because we're never going to be treated properly here, and Africa, Africa is the place of our motherland. We should be sovereign there, and there are resources there. So we can be on an even level with any other nation, so we should go back home and redeem our motherland. Um, there, there were people who felt that way, and then there were people who said, no, we were born here, and we suffered and died here, and we deserve to be here just as much as anyone else. So... Those two ideologies were competing, and I could say that they were represented uh, most strongly um, by Marcus Garvey, who wanted to repatriate to Africa as a demon and for us to be sovereign, and W.E.B. Du Bois, who said, no, we were born here, we live here, we're just as intelligent and capable as anybody else, and we should stay here and fight for our rights here. So those were the two ideologies that were kind of competing. Um, Yes, Garvey's ideology of Pan-Africanism and black people redeeming themselves um, is still so strong because there's still that desire within black people, people of African descent, to have a place they belong that is theirs and that they can rule freely and autonomous and make their own decisions. Um, so he 
you know, you can't really overstate his importance enough. He said things like, a reading man and woman is a ready man and woman, but a writing man and woman is exact. And, of course, his most famous Africa for the Africans, those at home and those abroad. Very famous for the red, black, and green flag. Red for the blood that we share, black for the people, and green for the land. And then there's gold that's added because of the riches of the motherland. So he, he constantly was trying to, he used many things to uplift black people and rebuild their confidence in themselves. The costumes, which, yes, we can be royal, we can be clean, we can be all those things that we told were told that we were not. So the outfits were more like some people ridiculed and, oh, what is all of this? But if you look at ethnic groups in Africa like the Zulus, you know, um, we've always adorned ourselves very elaborately. So he was really following an African tradition by doing that. Um, he he knew that, you know, he had to try and repair our confidence in ourselves and our rulership, and that's what the UNIA was all about. Um, you know, uh, they had the the faction of the nurses, you know, that was staffed, um, you know, and he really, he was so important. His um, paper, The Negro World, was banned in many uh, colonial African countries because it caused the Africans there to overthrow white domination. You, you could be, if you were caught reading that newspaper, you can be killed for that. And Kwame Nkrumah, who is the president of the first post-colonial independent African state, Ghana, he came when he came to the the United States to be educated. He attended UNIA meetings. If you look at the flag of Ghana, you will see that it has the black star in the middle. That star is from Marcus Garvey's Black Star Liner, which was his shipping company that he um, created and that was going to be used to move Africans in the Americas back to Africa as well as do commerce and business, because that's one thing that I think um, is often neglected about Marcus Garvey's story in the UNIA. He was very much into black, you could say uh, black capitalism, if you like, you know. But for me, it was, it's hard to call it pure capitalism because it wasn't something, it wasn't a hierarchical structure. It was like black people need their own economy, their self-sufficient economy, and they can do business with other people, but... When they're doing business with other people, it needs to benefit them. They need to be the chief benefits of, of that commerce. So um, he was definitely an advocate of uh, black people owning their own businesses, running their own businesses, profiting from their intellect and their resources. He was adamant about that. Um, so I'm trying to think of anything else that I can say. <laughs> anything uh, else? I, I mean, there's, there's so very much um, that I could say. You know, he, he traveled the world. His philosophy traveled as well. It traveled far. It inspired liberation movements in Africa. So it was truly a pan-African movement because it united Africans throughout the diaspora. It really, really did. It really did, unlike anything before or since. It was the largest of the organizations we've had. And it continues to inspire um, 
the uh, soccer team in Ghana is named the Black Star Line. Hmm. So um, you you really can't overstate his influence enough. It's right. so far-reaching. It inspires my thesis. My repatriation thesis is because of Marcus Garvey and the desire, again, within myself for repatriation. Right. So, yeah. it, you know. I wanted to ask you, because um, our, our other guests are, are are in the studio, uh wanted to um, ask you uh, more specifically about how – how you came to know Marcus Garvey and uh and his work and and you mentioned that you know you're a pan African independent visual anthropologist in the tradition of Zora mm-hmm. Neale Hurston <clears throat> and when I was looking at some of the work that you've done you've you've done films on the black Indian tradition here um which is a tradition that's mm-hmm. not really well known um and uh could you name the other films that you've done? you have a couple of others? Okay, I did one called The Cosmology of Words, The Journey from Griot to Rapper. Mm-hmm. And like with me, my thing has always been to show the linkages between us as African people because those are the things that were attacked first. And those are the things that they said, okay, we'll divide and rule. We'll make them think that they're so different they can never come together because if they come together, that unity is power. So for me, it's always to show the linkage and to always know where I came from because anything that we're doing now is derived from something. So when I was, that that cosmology of words, the journey from griot to rapper was actually, um, that was something I kind of dedicated to uh, Tupac Amaru Shakur when he passed away. Um, it It connected like the lineage of, you know, those African storytellers, because I see um, rappers as, as, as our modern-day griots. They're telling about our experience, what's going on with us, what's happening with us. They're recording history. You know, I would say the good ones are. <laughs> some, of, some of that stuff is nonsense, but, you know, it was important for me. And interesting that you had Dr. Tushaka on because he actually narrated that. Oh. Um, and, <laughs> yes. And we talked about the power of the word, Nomo, mm-hmm. okay. the power of the word, you know. The word made, makes flesh. That's the right. word makes reality. And the word is very important to African people. That's why we have to be so careful with it and tre- treasure it, because the word is going to create our existence. So um, that was one of the reasons um, I, I did that to show. And, you know, I talked about the word being used in our our sermons, um, you know, with people like um, Martin Luther King Jr., Al Sharpton, you know, the word being used um, politically, you know, when we are fighting for our freedom, people like Fannie Lou Hamer or Kwame Ture, um, you know, just, and, and again, like I said, the word being used by rappers like Tupac who talked about, you know, uh, the Black Panthers, of which his mother was a member, and, you know, he had godparents like Geronimo Chijaga, who recently made his transition in um, Tanzania, which is also about Pan-African movements. He went there, and he put in a well for the local people. He was working with a wonderful couple, the the O'Neills, Charlotte and Ron O'Neill. Yeah, so, um, you know, it's, it's about those connections. You know, some of us can see those connections and make movements around them. So I did that. Um, 
and let me, let me, it's funny. <laughs> I'm trying yeah. to think what else am I doing. Yeah. And, and um, mention the maroons. Yeah, but I also want uh, you to, because um, um, the other guests are in the studio, um, so we don't have a, we're like right. overtime. But I want you to mention right. um, this, uh, they're having a lot of celebrations of Marcus Garvey's life this weekend. We're having yeah. one here in um, in Oakland mm-hmm. at uh, Marcus Garvey mm-hmm. Park. It's going to be all day. Jabari, um, it's going to be on the air. And uh, yes, he might be there on the air presently. I just haven't checked the studio uh, mm-hmm. to talk about about the first annual. But you're going to be going to Florida to. Um, yeah. Uh, Port Lauderdale, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and and Garvey had children, and one of his yes, sons is going to be speaking. So I want you to tell us about Marcus Garvey, Ruth's Extravaganza, uh, 2011. Because Marcus Garvey, I was trying to do the math. Um, he would be um, 124 years old today. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so tell us about um, this, uh, this Ruth's Extravaganza that you're going to be attending. Are you presenting as well? Um, no, I'm not presenting. I'm actually filming the event, and um, I hope oh, to okay. attend an interview with um, Dr. Julius Garvey for my uh, documentary on repatriation. So um, on Saturday, August 20th, from 7 p.m. to 11 p.m. in Fort Lauderdale, there is an event that has two uh, keynote speakers. The first is the youngest son of... Marcus and Amy Garvey. That's Dr. Julius Garvey, and he will be presenting. And the second speaker is Dr. Umar Johnson, who is like however many great nephews of Frederick Douglass. So um, this will take place at Carter Park at 1450 West Sunrise Boulevard, Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And so I'm it's um at Joseph Carter Park. I'm very um excited and um honored to actually be attending the event. Mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to it. Um his son of course would be the closest that I have to get to Marcus Garvey, who I revere as like a prophet and a great black liberator. Um, so it's pretty kind of uh I guess awesome. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Yeah, and I would definitely come back and share my um, impressions of that. And eventually, when this documentary is complete, I would definitely have a screening and would make you and your listeners know so that they can attend and um, see. Oh, that would be great. It would be great to uh, maybe maybe have you, maybe we might be able to show some of your, your other films uh, maybe during um, October, yeah. during Alpha Awareness Month. That would be really nice. I'm sure everyone hasn't oh, seen definitely. all of them. Yeah, that would be yes, nice. Yes, I think, too. Yeah, because the Maroons are very, very important because, again, you know, these are people who uh, refuse to be slaves, and it was their African identity that is the reason for their liberation. I think that's something that's kind of uh, left out of, of our story because many times it's as if, you know, oh, some people were nice or these abolitionists were nice and said, oh, you shouldn't be slavery, it's a bad thing. Mm-hmm. You know, here's your freedom, black people, or, you know, or they attributed to Abraham Lincoln, who was basically just trying to uh, solidify his presidency and keep uh, power. Um, our liberation was due to our own efforts and our own desires. It's a human desire to be free, and we're no different than any other people. We wanted to be free, and we did everything to make that happen ourselves. We're definitely um, retaining 
those African sensibilities, identities, to know who you are and to know I'm not this thing, this slave you're trying to make me. That is why we're free today. Right. And Marcus Garvey is definitely, you know, the father of those types of uh, rebellious movements that continue post-slavery and continue right. even until today. Well, Nefertina, um, we are so over. <laughs> I know. Okay, well, thank so, you so uh, three, much. Three folks in the studio. So thank you. Thank you so yeah, much um, uh, for joining us to talk about Marcus Garvey's legacy on his birthday. And uh, safe travels to Fort Lauderdale for the celebration. And we're looking forward to um, definitely hearing, uh, you know, you know, your response to, to the um you know, to the event, and and we're certainly looking forward to this this definitive film, one of many. I hope you know. I hope you inspire others to tell the story as well um, after they see this one. Um, but yeah, we're certainly looking forward to it because there really hasn't been a feature length film that does our brother justice. Definitely, and thank you so much for all that you're doing. And I hope to see some of you, if not all of you, at the Mayasa in October. All right. And so I'm so looking forward to that. Okay, you take care. All right. You too. Peace and blessings. Well, thank you, Sheba Makeda-Haven and Javari Shaw and Elder Ronald Freeman for hanging in there. We're like, ah, so over. (laughs) How are you all doing today? Well, thank you. Oh, super, super. Um, Well, Sheba, since I hear you so loud and clear and Elder Freeman, you've been with us the whole time, which is so nice. Um, Why don't we... um, why don't we start with you, Sheba? Um, actually, well, yeah, because Elder Freeman, he, he spoke a little bit at the top of the show, which was around mm-hmm. a couple of hours, well, an hour or so ago. So why don't you talk about the UNIA and uh, and the work that you and um, Elder Freeman and I believe some others um, uh, did to establish uh, the organization here in the Bay Area? Well, um I first wanted to say I think the what I heard from the sister was very good, mm-hmm. uh, and and she did talk about the business aspect of the UNIA, but uh, for me the most important thing, still I'm echoing her, is um, the tie to the history of the Black Panther Party that uh, that uh, that when we look at the you know the broad range of uh, our history in America that Marcus Garvey provides. Um, both Freeman and I were members of the Black Panther Party, and we both went underground. And almost miraculously, we both wound up in the same church. Freeman introduced me to um, uh, Bishop Hawk, and from there, who is also Bishop King, and from there... I introduced them to the idea of the African Orthodox Church. I was studying uh, world religions and got turned on to the African Orthodox Church as a place to receive my orders from. And uh, the the involvement of the African Orthodox Church with the UNIA is through um, Bishop uh, McGuire. It's historical. I beg your pardon? I'm saying it's historical. It goes all the way back to the 20s. Exactly. To to McGuire, who was the chaplain general of the UNIA. The UNIA started all their meetings with a call to prayer. But Marcus Garvey had a a 
very strong idea that there should not be an official religion for the UNIA. So when um, McGuire started the African Orthodox Church, that sort of threw a wedge into their friendship um, because McGuire was a Christian. And there was, uh, what was his name, Prince Hall was the Islamic minister that was a member of the UNIA. So it, uh, not Prince Hall, he was a major. So that it caused some dissension. But it turns out that it was a very good thing because when Marcus Garvey was arrested for mail fraud, the UNIA, I mean the African Orthodox Church, had the organizational uh, ability to defend him around the world because, like the UNIA, it was a worldwide organization. And unlike the UNIA, they couldn't be charged with tax fraud because they were a non-profit. So it was like a very favorable thing. Now, because Elder Freeman and I were both members of the UNIA, when the U, I mean of the African Orthodox Church, there came a point, and I think that was in the late 80s, that the UNIA decided that they needed to hand this over to the next generation, and they needed some people with some organizational abilities. So when they found out they had old panthers in the African Orthodox Church, they came to us and asked us to be involved. So my involvement, I have to confess, has been very limited to basically signing the papers and every once in a while speaking about Marcus Garvey and externally advocating black business and um, talking about the the role of women in struggle, because that's another thing that Marcus Garvey did. He put women forward in their own right, not even though the um, the what was it, the Urban Cities League, the 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 women's auxiliary was an auxiliary. It was actually an organization in its own right that uh, looked for the did the what we called survival programs in the Black Panther Party. So I think there's a a very strong link. I think that anyone that would want to be an organizer today needs to take a close look at the UNIA and the relationships it forged amongst other organizations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then the only other thing that is really important, J. Edgar Hoover cut his baby teeth on Marcus Garvey. That's what was the initial development of COINTELPRO, the counterintelligence program, that was used to uh, attack the Black Panther Party as well as many other organizations. But he got started with Marcus Garvey. Sent in infiltrators. There was a man that stabbed Marcus Garvey and got away with it. Um, Sent in infiltrators in the form of the steamship captains that sunk and then recovered his ships so that... um, and then with um, just having a few well-placed people to complain about the stocks that they had bought in the Black Star Line. So, yeah, so that's what's really important. Anyone that is interested in freedom anywhere needs to know who Marcus Garvey is and the history of the UNIA. Okay. <laughs> all right, all right. Can I talk now? 
Yes, please. Yeah. I'm going to acknowledge everyone that spoke spoke before, so I don't have to go into the history. But uh, on that on that note, there's also uh, other books and other things that people need to read, and that's uh, Tony Martin. You know, he's like a, he's in the UNIA. He's a member of the UNIA, and I have to speak to the fact that the organization still exists today. You can be in the UNIA and still be in, in another organization. You can join the UNIA if you're of African descent, and don't and there's no problem. There's a chapter in Los Angeles. There's a chapter in Chicago, Detroit, New York, New York. Um, uh, uh, D.C., Philadelphia. The headquarters is in Philadelphia. There's a chapter in Canada. There's uh, people in the... Uh, Still in the, uh, uh, Central America, uh, there's a chapter in Jamaica, there's a chapter in England uh, that still exists today. Uh, the chapter in Los Angeles is having a, a three-day festival tonight. Yeah. They're having a candlelight visual uh, on August the 20th. Uh, they're having a parade and a, a family, and they're having a free breakfast on the 21st. And they're going to be at the Marcus Garvey School in Los Angeles on 6th Avenue in Slauson all day for, for, for that weekend. Wonderful. Uh, yeah. Um, um, yeah, you know, I'm one of them cubs and stuff. My mother and, 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 and my uncles and stuff was, uh, uh, my grandfather was a Garveyite, a Marsh American. He followed Noble Drew Ali. Um, so uh, I got I'm, I, I got history. I grew up in the community before before integration took hold. You know, it was still uh, separation when you had black businesses. All the little stores in the community was owned by people in the community. All uh, I had neighbors down the street was a garbage. You know, in Detroit they had a a, a, a large uh, population of uh, uh, garbage. And uh, um, there was only certain sections in Detroit you could live. You know, I don't care if you was rich or poor. You know, the rich blacks lived on the edge with the white folks, and the other blacks lived behind them. Uh, so uh, Garveyites was uh, in the community. They was my next-door neighbors. They was uh, leading on the next block. So, um, yeah, that's. I grew up in a community like that, and, and uh, maybe that uh, has something to do with me being a Black Panther. But people need to read Garvey's books because he got a, a one on 22 lessons on how to be a black leader, and people should uh, encompass that book in their uh, studies, in their life. Yeah. yeah tell, us, tell us a little bit about um, some of the uh, values and principles that you learned as, as a young person, um, Elder Freeman, that, that – is you know is guiding your life because you grew up in Detroit, Michigan, and and also yeah. Los Angeles, California. So I was wondering if you could maybe share some of those uh, Garveyisms, so to speak. Well, <laughs> mm-hmm. well, you know the old folks when I was used to be a little kid on the street, they used to they used to say do it. Uh, they used to tell me all the ways that we had to do for ourselves that uh, uh, that we didn't have to depend not to depend on anybody else, and that uh. uh and if we wanted anything in life, we'd have to do it ourselves. That's that stuck in my mind. <laughs> mm-hmm. No. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yep. 
Okay. Um, yeah, they, yeah, yeah. They, they caused a little sense of community because I remember a time when, when, when there wasn't that many police in the black community, you know, and the elders in the community was the ones that uh, really took care of the neighborhood. Uh, this concept of the police, I've seen it happen in the early 50s. I've seen it happen up to this day. More police come to my community, crime go up. You know, we get, we have more jobs, crime go down. So I, I think it's having money. You know, so as long as we got some money, we all right. And uh, uh, your system know that. So the whole thing right now is about people having a, a some jobs. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, am, am I changing the subject? No, no, of course not. <laughs> that's, no, what not Garvey, at all. that's what that's what Garvey was a, was about, though. He was about he was, he was about a, uh, a self-employment. He was about employing employing his people. I heard a sister say something about capitalism. Uh, I would call you. I wouldn't call it capitalism or socialism. I would call it Africanism, uh, because this thing was about deal, dealing with us first, uh, race first. Uh, everybody else was doing it. The, uh, Hitler was doing it. Uh, Europe was doing it. You know, the only people who wasn't doing it was us North Americans, black. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, Jabari. Um Ali Shah, you're a recent graduate, um, Laney College, um, leader in the Black Studies um uh, department, Black Studies Union at, at Laney College. And and you are um I believe spearheading uh this um celebration of Garvey's life this weekend in Oakland. Why don't you tell us about about this program that you are uh this event that you're sort of spearheading yeah. and, and also talk about Marcus Garvey and how he has impacted and shaped your life because I believe you're you're one of the younger um, guests this, this today um, honoring Marcus Garvey on the air. Yeah, it, it was frustrating to me to find out that they did a big march in, in L.A. for uh, Marcus Garvey and that we didn't have one out here. And, uh, I grew up like in the area they call Lower Bottom in West Oakland. They got a big deal to say you and I, hey. So I always been interested, like, you know what I'm saying, what is that about? What's more about that, you know? Right on twelfth Street they got a big memorial of him, you know, and uh my name was Jabari. So with a name like Jabari growing up, you know, back when I was growing up, you feel me, nobody really had names like that. So kids picked on me, I thought it was a girlish name and I looked deeper into the roots of it and you know, found out it means strong and fearless. And, like, when I went to see my grandmother, she dressed me up in these dashikis, you know, red, black, and green flags. And I didn't really understand it, like, to grasp it. But uh, just a few years ago, while I taking classes at Laney, I um, I ended up doing a report on Marcus Garvey. And uh, it just so happens that my son was born on his birthday. Oh, and I wow. Think he, yeah. Oh, congratulations. How old is he? Uh, he made four today. Oh, that's wonderful. Wow. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah so, so I try to pan it out that, um, you know, that we can do it out here in Oakland at, like, 11 o'clock. We want to meet at the bookstore and try to call for media attention and let, them, let people know that uh, we're going to be out there. And, um, they're going to give us, like, a tour of the bookstore and give us some history on Marcus Garvey. And from there, you know, a small group will some march to the park, which is um, we march from 39th to 34th and Martin Luther King, Old Grove Street, and there's a little park in there. We have music, uh, you know, a few speakers. Uh, we'll play some of the speeches, uh, you know, play some Burning Spear, stuff like that, uh, and have a jumper for kids, you know, and keep it exciting. 
and around 5 o'clock we're going to uh, march around to a church that uh, we feed the homeless out of every Wednesday from 11 to 2. So uh, we're going to do our first bag. About, we have about 50 bags of groceries, eggs, uh, potatoes, you know, onions, uh, you know, little stuff that just help people get by, not necessarily for people that's homeless, but for people that got jobs and can't really make it through the month, you know. Um, so we, we try to empower others, you know, ourselves by empowering others because we don't want to go asking the press for handouts. So we're trying to uh, build some kind of tight-knit unity in our community. The community that we're doing it in called Ghost Town, and it's just about to be a ghost town because this is about one of the last uh, black communities left in West Oakland. Uh, West Oakland has been strongly gentrified, and, and there's been a lot of murders amongst our people. So we're trying to stand up and, and, and unite that way, maybe through food, just like the Panthers did it, you know, back in the day. We, we figure, like, you know, we can bring together around that. Right. And then you mentioned um, in uh, uh, in the uh, announcement about the event that the event was uh, inspired by the Royal um, uh, Fisk family. And, um, yeah, I was wondering if you could tell us about this organization that um, that you are a part of. Well, I'm not part of that organization. Oh, okay. Um, we, we create an organization. It's called UMA. Um, it's it's uh, African for Community. And it stands for United and Making Mature Adults. And um, it's not actually an organization, organization, but it's like programs that we're trying to build to educate our youth. The, um, it just so happened, I wanted to do this about a year ago for Marcus Garvey. I couldn't get the support that I needed, so we called it off. And uh, going through the archives, my archives at the BSU office at Laney, I um, came up on one of their flyers, and I'm like, man, I got to do it this year, you know. And so I figure if I put it out there, you know, if you build it, they will come. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right, right, super, super. And you're also a really wonderful poet, and you belong to an ensemble. What's the name of the ensemble that you're a part of? Our group is called The Truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Truth, yeah, you yes. all, mm-hmm. yeah, I saw you all, um, heard you all perform um, at uh, Eastside um, Arts Cultural Center uh, at the first of two Celebrations of Geronimo Gijaga's life, and and then that Sunday you all performed again, and I, and I told you yesterday that if you had a poem or something you wanted to share that you could, uh, would you like to? Yeah, yeah, I give a couple boys. Now we ain't looking <laughs> for no handouts. We fighting for our just dues. I represent the vanguard, the front line of revolution. We don't need their nuisance. We got our own solutions. Oppression and depression suggested that we ain't human. Pick up yourself by the straps of your boots. Perhaps the blacks will fight back if they get back to their roots. Back to recruiting like Huey Newton because they'd rather have us on some more black-on-black backstabbing, black-on-black shooting, not the cooling, a hoo Join your folks in the struggle. Inside of boo and I miss you and burying brothers. Life a struggle with some gifts against the center design to keep us locked up in prison out here killing our kind. You can't get rich after selling them dimes. You end up addicts like a family of mine. Pick up a book and enlighten your mind. Be a soldier no longer spiritually and mentally blind. Oh, nice. <laughs> Thank you so much. That was beautiful. So, um, Jabari, if people are interested in finding out more information about about this uh, event on Saturday honoring um, Marcus Mosiah uh, Garvey's life, uh, is there a website? I know you're on Facebook. Is there a website they should go to or should they just go to Facebook? Um, can they call you or email you? What should they do if they're interested? And tell us again where where the march is starting. Okay, the march will start on 39th and Martin Luther King at Marcus Garvey Bookstore at 11 o'clock. Um, we'll 
and 45 with March and plan to be at the park at 12 on 34th and Martin Luther King. But we have hot dogs for the kids, uh, peach cobbler, watermelon, uh, jerk chicken, cabbage. You know, we, we... <laughs> 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 you know, and everything for the people, you know what I'm saying? It, it, it's, you know, free of charge. You know, we've we been working to get this together for the people. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I'll be there. Oh, well, let me mention this here because y'all was talking about sisters. You know, in L.A., this is the 22nd year they're doing this Marcus Garvey Day Parade. And it's, it's been wow. a sister that's been holding that organization down there. She was the president for years. Uh, but she's been very ins- instrumental in keeping that organization of, uh, alive down there in uh, Southern California. Um, I thank what's y'all her, for having me. What's her name? Uh, sister, uh, sister Kaylee. Sister Kaylee, okay. Yeah. Yeah. She's and, and El- I got, I got, I got. They, they, they. Uh, 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 email thing is Marcus Garvey Los Angeles at hotmail dot com. Marcus Garvey Los Angeles. Los Angeles at hotmail dot com. Okay, cool, super, and and thanks so much for telling us about the Marcus Garvey um, school. It's uh, it's been yeah, around yeah, for. Yeah. Yeah, you got the data on the school. The school been around for years since what? Thirty years. Yes. Mhm. Right, right. Yeah. Right. And tell tell our audience because um you know you and I talked about it off the air yesterday. Tell our audience before you leave um, the air a little bit more about the school, um, who founded it, and um, and you know I think it, does it go K through high school? Right. It goes to uh to to, to middle to middle school. Okay. They go through middle school, but they but they success rates. So even even when the kids leave from their middle school and they go to high school, ninety percent of them end up in college. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, they've been doing that for years. They've been uh, been in a lot of uh, uh, books on education and everything. Uh, Doctor Onion Farmer, he he founded the school. He used to be a professor back in the uh, uh, the sixties. And uh, uh, he founded the school, and uh, it's been very successful, and it, and it teaches our, our kids the history of who they are. It teaches them three languages, uh, two, two, two forms. Of, they, they, yeah, they, they learn algebra. I mean, they learn everything before they uh, leave elementary school. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so cool. I didn't even know there was a Marcus Garvey School in Los Angeles. And as you said, it's been around for, I think, 34 years now. Uh, yeah, 34 years. The founder, um, Dr. Anyam Palmer, um, he, uh, I, I believe he's, is, he passed, right? I think so. Or, or yeah. he's very sick. Uh-huh. I think he yeah. did pass. Right, but he, um, you know, um, they are... Um, they're doing. They're still doing some really wonderful work. So when right. you're in LA, you should definitely go by and visit the school. Um, you know, we're looking at doing charitable giving. Definitely Sixth a school. Avenue is mm-hmm. Yeah, right in the hood. Sixth Avenue is <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Well, cool. Super. Um, well, uh, so you said you're going, Elder uh, Freeman. Um, yes. Our other guest, we were um, going to be speaking to. Um, uh, Sundiata and, and Robert King, but they haven't joined us yet. And we were going to make the connection between um, the UNIA, and you already did that, Sheba, when you were talking about um, how, you know, being a member of the Black Panther Party, you know, and being a member of the UNIA, you know, there was, you know, there was no separation there, you know, with regards to philosophically uh, what the uh, organizations were about. 
and and then you talked about um, the. Uh, um, well, it's a little, it's a little bit when you go into yeah. politics, you know, between <laughs> the UNIA and the Black Panthers, because you know we had yeah. a thing because the UNIA was a uh, uh, strictly of uh, uh, people of African descent. Uh, oh, okay. Even uh-huh. though the Black Panther was for people of African descent, but it also formed alliances with uh, a few already. Garvey tried to form alliances. He even tried to form one with the Ku Klux Klan. It didn't work. Indeed. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But he kept the thousand dollars. You know, they want to send us to Africa. Let them pay for it. You know. Yeah. Uh, so uh, uh, he was. Uh, uh, Garvey tried a lot of different things. You know, I, I don't. I don't know. Uh, you had to. Call it talk about the history, but there's also a thing that with our history. You know, we just come out of slavery too, and a lot of us, you know, that's why so many black black people in North America joined the UNIA, and they joined it from all different educational uh, perspectives. It was, but the organization was built on nickels and dimes and pennies. You know, exactly. it wasn't built on hundreds of thousands of dollars. It was built on, on on the support of the people, and the people supported the organization. That's why I'm saying it was. You, you know, you may not have no two million on record that was in the organization, but there was chapters of the organization all over the country, and there was people that were supporting it. You know, if they weren't signing up as being a uh, a regular member, but they was kicking in pennies and nickels and dimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this yeah. this particular week, um, you know, Marcus Garvey is born on the seventeenth. Um, and then um, the 22nd, I believe, is the anniversary of the uh, the start of the Haitian Revolution, and mm-hmm. and then the 21st is an, the 40th anniversary this year of uh, George Jackson exactly. being uh, being shot and killed uh, at San Quentin. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and then we call this whole month Black August um, for a lot of reasons. Yeah, resistance. Uh huh. Right on. Yeah, we got to have some for resistance. We got one for black history. You know, we got one for black mamas and black daddies and all that. We need one for resistance, you know. Somebody got to resist. I mean, you know, talk about the maroon. You know, you go back with their history, it goes back to resistance. You know, we have black people been been resistant since they We've been fighting from Africa all the way over here. Only when they put us on this, somebody else's land, we've been fighting ever since. You know, so it ain't, yeah, we've been resisting slavery. We ain't all been happy slaves. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. So Don't nobody get at- that notion. Yeah, so sort of talking about the resistance and, and you're a member of All of Us or None, and mm-hmm. uh, Cindy was saying that currently, you know, the focus of the organization, uh, which is made up of people that were formerly incarcerated, uh, right. is, and you know, looking at... And family and friends and people who, who know people that have been incarcerated or people that have never been incarcerated but mm-hmm. see it as, as being an injustice, what they're doing to people inside prison. Oh, okay. Because I thought you had to have actually had the experience. Okay, so oh. I can, oh, so I can be no, a member. No, anybody can. Oh. Yeah, everybody can join. Y'all come join us. Oh, I didn't know office. that. Oh, <laughs> we got an office in San Francisco. Our email number. I mean, I don't think you can get through. You won't get to that. We might, but we got an email. It's info at allofusanon dot org. Right, right, and presently. Um, uh, all of us and none is focusing on 
you know, the the, uh, the hunger strike that the hunger strike. was um, yeah. that was started by um, you know the incarcerated men at uh, in Pelican Bay in the you know in the security housing unit, and then next week there's going to be a rally and uh, a legislative hearing in California at the state capitol um, okay. on the 23rd. And I was wondering um, if you could tell us, do you know anything about that um, with regards to well, the organization I mean, of it? Well, I, I know this right uh, to, to a point. I mean, things is kind of on hold, you know, uh, uh, within the system. They caused a lot of confusion in the uh, correctional department uh, with people that was trying to help from the outside, and that they wouldn't let uh, uh, people really communicate, you know. So that was that was an area that caused a, a lot of disorganization and, and that. But the thing is, is that. Uh, what they're doing to the people inside, they really need be, need to be supported, and 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 uh, on every level because uh, when you can find someone to isolation for years, you know, with no human contact, that's an inhuman treatment, and and that should be outlawed, and they should stop that that practice, you know, and that's what they do at Pelican Bay and all the uh, housing units. They did it to me. Right. You know, years ago, they called it then the adjustment center. They did it to me. So uh, they'll keep you in there for years because they got people that I knew uh, from the 70s that are still in there to this day. And, that's, and then we in there, 20,000. Uh, this was in the 1900s. So uh, that that. Then they then they release them to society and then expect for these people to function with two hundred dollars. I don't know how, you know, and no uh, 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 structure when they when they come back uh, outside here to society and they're going back to the same neighborhood they come from. That's right. a, uh, that's yeah, and the police know that and they're doing it on purpose. See, the correctional officers and the parole department doing it on purpose. Yeah, um, no. Robert King has just joined us. Robert King, the only free member of the, of the Angola Three. Good morning, Robert. How are you? Hello, I'm. You know, how are you all? all <laughs> oh, we're right. good. Yeah, you're all on the right. air with um, Elder Freeman. Uh, hey, Elder. Uh, Sheba, Makeda Haven. Hey, Sheba. Hey, hey, uh, yeah. I'm gonna shut up, man. I'm gonna listen to you, brother. No, you ain't. You're gonna keep talking, bro. <laughs> yes, I am, man. Yes, I am. I, I like, I like everybody else to do the talking because I side with y'all. You know, I support everything everybody's doing, man. We got to get these people out of prison. We got to change the prison yeah. system in this country. It don't need yeah. to be one. All right. <laughs> yeah. Um, we're also. Um, um, we also have some folks on the air still. Um, uh, Nefertina uh, Abrams is still on the air, and, and Javari is on the air. And Sundiata hasn't joined us, and he was going to talk to us about um, John, uh, George Jackson, uh, who was who was killed this month, as well as his brother. His brother was killed this month mm-hmm. um, when he was yeah, you know brother. helping liberate his liberate his, yeah. his brother. Um, yeah, do you want to talk about that, Elder, um, for a minute? Um, talk about sort of the whole thing, and then King, you definitely can join in about and anyone else who wants to add something to the whole notion of Black August. We you mentioned about a month of resistance, but the specifics around it. Do you want to talk about that, uh, Elder? Well, yeah, well, you know it's. Well, and tell, know, us, and tell, I, us who, uh, tell us who George Jackson uh, was as well. Well, George Jackson was a—he uh, was a young man that got a, uh, got arrested in Southern California, went to prison on a on a um, a little eighty dollar robbery, 
and uh, uh, he ended up losing his life inside inside the prison prison system fighting for uh, uh, human rights. Um, he was a, a young man that uh, studied. Uh, see, that's what's important. You have to study. He read Marx. He read he was he read philosophers. He read economic books. I mean, I'm saying people need to go to Marcus Garvey uh, uh, bookstore. They got one in San Francisco and one in Oakland, and get these books and read them. Yeah, I mean, you, people can sit and tell you, but we're telling you stuff that we didn't read in books and stuff that we didn't heard from other people, you know. But people need to go get get this information and read it for themselves. Uh, but George Jackson was a young man that wanted to do something about the social and economical system that we was living up under. He wanted to do something about the prison system and how it was affecting uh, 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 people that was being incarcerated. Because the system don't need to work the way it's working. We don't have to have the kind of system for uh, uh, this punishment thing that they have for crimes. The way they treat people is inhuman. You can't expect people to come out from being in prison. That ain't, that ain't what it's designed for. We're supposed to come back from society and be functional. We're not supposed to go to prison and come back and be functional. Be worse, worse off than we was when we went. That's not what it's designed for. So, let's keep talking. 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 Let's keep yeah. yeah, I was listening to I was listening to Elder describe a uh, uh, George. I didn't know George uh, uh, personally, but uh, George was a a great a great inspiration to to us at the time when George was uh, was arrested. Because I remember it was like early nineteen. Uh, I mean, when I was arrested, early nineteen seventy or uh, late sixty nine, and uh, uh, while at the annex, you know, after you know, before I even became politically conscious and aware, and before I had even realized that uh, Black Panther chapter had come to New Orleans, which had been December 1969, but this was early 70s, and I remember, you know, um, meeting up with some with with some brothers who knew about, uh, you know, politically, you know, act, you know, activities that were that were taking place. But like I say, I was just you know, street dude lumping, you know, just going my way. But after being um, being being arrested, then I think I came into contact with George. His, his spirit. Uh, I remember reading the, the letters. Uh, you know, when I first came into contact, this was around late seventy or seventy one, and uh, I came into uh, into connection with him, and I felt the kinship. You know, and wow. Um, this brother was just don't realize just how inspirational he, he was to to us, you know, uh, me as an individual, and I mean across the country, but especially uh, Herman and Albert, and, and 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 you know other other people in New Orleans at that time, and so uh, like George, like he was, you know, I I, I saw George as being a a top rated, you know, uh, uh, commander, and I think uh, you had named him right up. A political theoretician and a commander in the field, uh, uh, and he well he he because George had had risen to that to that point. He uh, he saw the new man woman, and he saw it in, in in the revolutionary consciousness in which I learned some some years later. You know, having been um, you know affected by 
you know, other, you know, uh, conscious, you know, thing that bring people into another area, including uh, religion. But it wasn't until I was really infected with uh, a consciousness of um, the type of the construct of society in which I live in that I think I, I, I attained some type of spiritual attainment, which has, uh, which, which have, you know, uh, carried me uh, uh, for more than 40 years, uh, something that, you know, after having read the Bible two or three times and having become a, quote, Christian and teaching the Bible, that could not sustain me, even after it being my mother's religion. It wasn't until I really learned about, you know, the construct of the system, and it was people like George, you know, who facilitated this, who, who really awakened that, 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 that that window of consciousness that was, you know, my that was in me that you know I was a rebel, you know, uh, with the cause but without a conscious and uh, a consciousness, a political consciousness. And I think he, along with so many other people, and other people had said it before George, but he just happened to be one of the one. Of, he's my hero. He's one of the poison I heard when he, when he said it, and I walk in his footsteps. So George meant a whole lot. To me, and when his debt was much, that was devastating, and it was a recommitment to me. When I heard about it, I was still in New Orleans Parish Prison, waiting to go back to Angola, uh, waiting to get another life sentence, along with seven or eight more, along with the thirty-five I had. And I just recommitted myself, you know, at 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 his loss. I think Angela described it at the time as a, an irretrievable loss, and I agreed with her. But George was. Was still is uh, my hero, and he had a great impact on on me personally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Shiva, did you have a comment? Oh, I just wanted to say that he was also he was a deep thinker, but he was also very charismatic. And yes, he was a field marshal in the Black Panther Party, uh, and he not one only inspired. One that chapter, Shiva, one that chapter in Berkeley. Then y'all, then y'all, yes. that y'all the George Jackson chapter of the Black Panther Party. Yep. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Right. And the mystery woman came out of there, but um we so that's how I got to know his mother and his family and uh they described him in very loving terms. But he was also a very charismatic individual. So he inspired people who were not in prison to uh greater devotion to the struggle because he had nothing but his Massive intellect, and he could. And he, so he inspired people inside and outside of the prison through his uh, great intellectual powers. You know. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah. He um he was author of of and book, beautiful um, smile. Yeah. yeah. He was author of the book Soledad Brother and Blood in My Eye, yeah. um, which became bestsellers and uh, brought him a great deal of attention from the left-wing community. And um, and he's also um, known as co-founder of the Black Gorilla family and mm-hmm. um, and uh, one of the Soledad brothers, um, Yasuni Ada is uh, another one, and hopefully he will call in before the show ends. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm trying to think. Um, well, King, um, uh, Elder Freeman? Um, yes. Yeah. So, continue talking about about this Black August and other, you know, sort of how Black August came to be. Because I thought in my reading, this is like I haven't read recently about it, but I thought Black August started after George Jackson was killed. I thought that's when the 
the commemoration yeah, yeah. of all of the the people born and people who were killed uh, in battle. You know, I'm talking battle for the liberation of African people. Um, you know, that's yeah, when well, the see, yeah. Okay, uh-huh. yeah. Let me tell you about this. About okay, yeah. The prison movement. <laughs> this first first time yeah. I heard about it was uh, uh, from the prison movement. Um, is that the brothers inside they wanted the people outside to do something, and they was already, I think they was already fasting and doing things in August already, so they decided to uh, do it around uh, 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 in August in honor of uh, George Jackson. George Jackson. Uh, yeah. From that, from that, it took on a nature, a nature of its own. Um, but uh, that was uh, like the first time I heard about it. That was like the first celebration that I went to, you know, was a uh, uh, was a Black August event, and it was in honor of uh, uh, George Jackson. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Anyone yeah, else? Yeah, and it's been going on ever since. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to mention that um, Asada Shakur was released from prison, too. Um, she escaped from prison in August also. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah, also... Yeah, so like after the prison movement and what happened in Attica, that uh, you know us being studiers of history, you know we we made all these coalitions that uh, Nat Turner did his big revolt August seventh, you know, and um, like a lot of things happened in August for black people, right? Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. especially right. Marcus Garvey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and you know, also a time we remember the fallen. Oh, sorry. Well, you know, if you can read them books, that's why I want to send everybody this Marcus Garvey book. So you got to read these books, you know, because I ain't going to sit up here and try to tell you everything about the organization because it's still in existence, and and people can join it. I mean, you know, uh, they could start help setting up the things that need to be done and not just do it from a historical position, you know, because in L.A. they take positions on things. They fought for uh, Marcus for Geronimo to be free. They used to come to all them rallies. They they used to be the ones holding up them red, black, and green flags down in front of the courthouse. You know, it was the people that was in the UNIA, African Community League in L.A. Uh, yeah, and the UNIA in New York is a, has come out in opposition to police brutality. And for right. many years, the DA in uh, Philadelphia was trying to kill Mumia on Marcus Garvey's birthday. That's right. They did try to do that. Yep, that was a tactical error on his part because everybody knew that it was Marcus Garvey. Well, not everybody, but people that didn't had never heard of Marcus Garvey (laughs) started to make a connection between the historical oppression of black people and their oppression today. So, yeah, so we remember the fallen comrades. Even uh, Safia passed in August, Safia Bukhari. Right, yeah. Yeah, and um I believe um Harry Tubman was born in uh in August. Yeah, so it's a, it's, so a, it's so, you know, like I said earlier, it's just like a month, just like you have a your black history month. We need a month that we need to uh get it all out. <laughs> you know? I like that idea, the month of resistance as opposed yeah. to black August, yeah. the month of mourning. Yeah, month you know, of uh, yeah, resistance. Yeah, yeah. that's that's yeah, a really yeah. great term. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, see, you, you know, in the Garvey movement, in the early part, they they used to have a convention for the whole month of August. Really? In the beginning. 
Yeah, oh. they used to do a, was a month. Now they do a week or something like that. They used to do a month. Oh, how nice. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, that's, yeah. I mean, this is our month. This is our month. We got, you know, we ain't all been passive, passive animals sitting by just <laughs> taking this. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. I'm serious. I know. I'm serious. Oh, yeah, I know you are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. God willing. I'm going to let y'all talk. Y'all don't want to hear me talk, you know, because all, all of my mouth, all of my mouth come out of me. You know, I heard people come talking on, about Bring the mama out. Talk to, bring the mama out and keep talking. No, I'm just saying that, you know, God is movement. They was in, they was yeah. in Africa. I mean, you heard their brother speak earlier. They, was in, they also was in Kenya, you know. Mm-hmm. And the mama used to read the Negro world. Really? Way back then. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's yes, amazing. Yes, indeed. Hmm. Yes, indeed. You know. Yeah. Hmm. So it's you know it it had effects all over all over Africa, West Africa, South Africa, North Africa. You know, people used to smoke the paper. You can get you can get killed for taking one of them colored papers over there. Hmm. Them ship boys on them ships, you could lose your life for smuggling the garbage paper in Africa. Hmm. Wow, that's that's powerful. It shows you the yeah. power of the word. That's for sure. Right. Well, it's, it was all about us uniting, start building for ourselves, doing for ourselves, and not asking for handouts from anybody else. Wherever we was at, wherever we found ourselves in twos or threes, we was to organize ourselves. You know, that's what God. Me, one of the things He said: the biggest weapon fighting against us was disorganization. We got to organize. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Kwame Kwame Jerry talked about that too. So that's where he got that from. Mm-hmm. We got to organize. Mm-hmm. No, yeah. it's been a problem. We've been having a problem organizing for a long time. Yes. Yeah, so what? What yeah. is that? Why? Why? Why do we have so much trouble organizing? Uh, uh, the differences within us. That's all I can find is that we can't. We have a hard time getting together on something. And this thing with money, you know, we we. You know, I, we haven't got over that yet. You know, two of us start putting two dollars together, and then we start distrusting each other. We was all right, so we put them two dollars together. You know, now we distrust each other. That don't make no sense. Mm-hmm. You know, but that's what's going on, mm-hmm. even to this day. Yeah. Division among ourselves, and we sometimes we be our worst enemies. Mhm. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, I think yeah. it's, uh, this is King. I think, too, yeah, uh, and I don't want to get off into it, but I think it's psychological, and I think that's something that never was addressed. And I think the psychology, the psychology, you know, past history, um, you know, plays a great uh, part in, in our psychology and how we relate to, to the reality in which we have, you know, um, have been what acclimated to or how we acclimate ourselves to this society. So I think it's psychological as well, but... Like you know, I, I you know how and how how you go in describing it. I, I wouldn't want to go into try to even attempt to go into those details because I'll probably make all kind of mistakes. Like I'm trying to psychoanalyze somebody, you know, uh, in reaction. <laughs> so I, I let the quote the expert do it, do it. But I do think this that is psychological. Why we relate, you know, why we can't come together, why we can't uh, organize, or why there is this mistrust. You know, yeah. I know, I'm using all this in quotation, which is correct, but I'm I'm, I'm right. just quoting out what other people have said and and what I've observed to be 
uh, uh, you know, stand true and correct it. But I also know this, that there are, uh, you know, while this might be, you know, primarily, there are some exceptions that people do uh, can organize and get together. And uh, I think I think that's, that's the part there that we have to maybe focus on. The ones that can do it, the ones that will do it, I think we have to, you know, this is where the main focus, uh, I think, uh, uh, has to be, and I think we have to just put it on a broader scale where where it needs to be applied. Uh, if it needs to be applicable in some other means of our daily lives, then do so. Uh, in organization or in activism, just do so. Let it be uh, applicable. But I think right. we have to, you know what I'm saying? We have to do it. We 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 just have to take advantage of what we have before us and try to make whatever it is better. You know they don't saying even though you can't reinvent the wheel, you know. But damn, we could have fun trying to go after that. We're the first one to invent that wheel because, in doing so, we make it better, and then we also improve ourselves. So, I guess we have to go have everything like as, as if it's the first time we, we we've gone at we've gone after it, uh, and we have to just stay with it. I think that's that's where we are at this point in time. We tried almost everything else, you know. Uh, so I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this sort of looks like, you know, looks at, you know, the whole idea of reparations and whole the word within reparations is to repair. So we can't wait for someone else to repair our nation, so to speak. We right. need to repair our own nation, you know, and that starts, you know, with the self and then with the family and then with the community and then it is spread out to the nation. But we have to start the work ourselves. When, and like you said, King, is an internal, an internal work. Um, I want to ask you, uh, King, if you want to give people the websites they want to plug in and see what's going on with uh, with Albert and Herman and, and Angola Three. Well, if uh, if if someone went to www.angola3.org or dot com or just go to Angola Three Grassroots dot org, and it'll link link them up with all the information that that's needed and. Uh, they can find out, get some updated information where we stand at, uh, where Herman and Albert stand at in the midst of, of trying to uh, yet obtain their freedom and so forth and so on. And, uh, and what, you know, what has been done and what, you know, what's on, in the making to be done. Uh, and, uh, and so, but, the, the, you know, just to give a, uh, a brief outline, yes, Herman and Albert are still, even after all these years, uh, legally, they are, they're, they, they're not barred procedurally from court proceedings. Uh, matter of fact, we have managed to keep the case alive in spite of the the AEDPA, you know, that lawyer that Clinton signed in the law way back in 1995, and that went into effect in, you know, 96. We managed to keep, and so many people since that time, and prisoners have been legally, what they call legally dead, because, um, you know, there's a procedure, there's a bar that prevents them from going in the court, well, this hasn't been a hindrance to to us in in the case with Herman and Albert. We have managed to keep the litigation alive, and um, and as a you know as a result, um, uh, as you know, Juan, at some point, uh, a judge overturned uh, Albert's case, and Albert was about to be uh, uh, you know let out on bond, but uh, the state attorney general, Buddy Caldwell, initiated a you know. Um, uh, a campaign against him uh, that that allowed the Fifth Circuit U.S. Court of Appeal to to look at the the issue, hear it, and then after hearing it, they uh, kind of reversed the uh, the bail and also 
ask for another hearing with regards to uh, the new trial being granted. So this is where we are now. September, that was supposed to take place September this year, but we are told uh, it may not happen. Um, the judge uh, in Herman's case, on the other hand, uh, um, you know, we were in that particular court for a, a, a period of time while it's, it was determined that the judge had terminal cancer and he could not, you know, hit a case. Uh, uh, he did not recuse himself, and I think it was lax on uh, the part of the, the legal team to not take advantage of this. Um, but like I say, you know, the legal team sometimes this is how they operate, and I don't. And most times I can see why grassroots don't agree with them. And in this case, I really uh, disagree because the case set in court for some time, uh, over t- about two years or so, while his jury had terminal cancer, no motion was filed. Uh, you know, on our behalf, because the jury was not going to file a motion to recuse himself. So it was left up to the defense to file a motion for recusal. And that did not happen. And then the judge died about a month ago. So now they have to go start almost all over again because there's another judge has to come in, and this judge has to look over the papers and blah, 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 and so forth. And it's going to take more time. And And this is where we lost a lot of time. And had they been... You know, more proactive. You know, it would have. I'm talking about our side, the team, the legal team, especially. Uh, we could have gotten ahead, but we kind of lost the ball on on that one. But overall, I think things are, are still good because um, you know Albert's case is going to proceed, and Harmon's case is also being litigated. He went to the. He had his case was recommended to be overturned by a state judge. It went to the Supreme Court and. Uh, Two subsuda in a three to one, they denied him a new new trial. But the the people who dissented uh, did not give any you know any reason for dissent, and the judge who gave all of his you know reason why he would grant a new trial. So this is a part of the record, and so he's now in a federal court, and 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 we feel that his case could actually catch up or pass Albert's case uh, because his case could be. Uh, you know, overturn as well. In other words, both are optimistic, and I know this is a long way, this is a long time, but if you're asking me, are they uh, legally dead in court? No, they're not legally dead within the court process. You know, they are still legally alive, you know, that they can litigate. And so this is where we are now, in still in the litigation stage after all these years. And uh, there, there is, like I say, expectation on their part, and, there is expectation on the part of the people who support them. And uh, as long as Harmon and Albert, and I, I have frequent talks with them, and it's long, infrequent sometimes, but as long as they are happy and they feel that things are moving in, in their direction and that it's not as long as uh, think whomever it might be, the ancestors, creator, God, whomever you want to call it, it won't be as long as it has been. So uh, they're optimistic, and, and we think that something will happen. Either this year, maybe for Harmon, uh, for both, uh, perhaps next year. But I say if you you would have asked me that last year or the year before, I would have told you the same thing. Hmm. Wow, yeah. Well, thank you. Um, did anyone else have any other comments? Because um, I, I found a little clip on Freedom Archives of George Jackson speaking, and I want to let people know that they're having an event at Eastside Arts Cultural Center on Sunday uh, the 21st, I don't know what time, you have to check their website uh, or check WandasPix.com to find out the time. It's probably going to be around 7 in the evening, but I they're going to have is. a panel. Okay, there's going to be a panel. Are you on the panel, um, Elder? No. No. Uh, the, uh, okay. uh, yes, the is. 
Yeah, San Quentin. Okay, yeah, they're going to be on on the panel, and they'll talk about um, the Soledad um, brothers and George Jackson from a perspective. I mean, they they actually know knew him, uh, you know, personally. So that a that'd be a really uh, wonderful experience for people. And then uh, there's going to be a screening of the film um, uh, that was real controversial um, at the. well, that's going to be next week. That's going to be on the 27th, I think, um, at the Correct Auditorium uh, at the, the Young Museum. Um, Kevin Epps is hosting these uh, film salons, and he's going to be showing that, that film, which I can't think of the name. You know which one I'm talking about, Elder? Um, Black What's called? No, no, no. No, the film about George Jackson that was really highly controversial. Like August? Yeah, yeah, Black August. Made, uh, yeah, Black August. I think. Yeah, I don't know. I ain't, I ain't seen them. So. Oh, okay. I don't think, yeah. I don't think I'd have seen them. I, I might, have, I might have, but I, well, I wasn't too interested in them. Okay, yeah, that's the one I believe. Yeah, Black August, okay. and uh, I, I saw it. Uh, it was a part of the San Francisco Black Film Festival when Ave Montague was still um, with us um, physically. She since has made a transition. So, um, so that's that's going to be screening uh, on the twenty. 27th at the Tourette Auditorium, and uh, and I believe the director or one of the director, the director or producer is going to be in the audience. Okay. Would you say that the thing for the prison strike is going to be when in Sacramento? Uh, it's on the, on the 23rd, 23rd um, Tuesday the 23rd. Um, there's going to be a rally, and and then there's going to, there's going to be the um, uh, the legislative hearings. I believe the legislative hearings start at 1, and the rally is before. It's going to be I'll really be crowded, and it's going to be a great, great list of I'll speakers. And I think there's going to be um, carpooling from the air, from you know, from the San Francisco Bay Area, like maybe in the East Bay and in San Francisco and elsewhere mm-hmm. for people that want to go. Um, tomorrow I'm going to have a, a special broadcast, and we're going to be talking to um, uh, one of the organizing attorneys for legal services for prisoners with children. Right. Uh, Carol, you know that's the- but yeah, I'm out, I'm out that same office, yeah, so I, I know. <laughs> I'm gonna be there. I'm gonna be there. Right, that's and I, and I invite everybody else to come. Probably we're gonna have something probably coming from the from the one of these bar stations, so they should call our office. Mm-hmm. You give us the number again. The office number. Yes. Um, I don't know if you can get through. Okay. Yeah, to I the have extension. it. See, um, the Av, the C. Let me find it. Um, it's area code. Oh, the number is area code four one five. Two five five seven zero three six four one five two five five seven zero three six and um uh I'm trying to think should uh, I don't know the extension that the extension for all of us all of us and none is an answering machine so oh is it okay I, that so that's not a good yeah. one they should, they should speak to a live no. person yeah you should it's try hit the website uh what is it no more uh I forget the website elder. Well, uh, the website is info. No, that's that's, that's the email. Oh, it's another one. Up. They might need to go through legal services for prisoners with children. Okay, uh, let me look it up. In the meantime, they all um, got the same phone number. They just got different extensions. Yeah, well, I've got extensions, but I don't know which one I should give people because I don't want to give them someone's extension and then they say, "Oh my God, this wasn't public information." Um, <laughs> yeah, well, that's, well, we don't care. Uh, yeah. So let me. Um, I'm going to tell you in a minute. Um, yeah, the website is allofusandnone.org. So A L L O F 
us, U-S, or O-R-N-U-N-O-N-E dot O-R-G. So you just go to the website and and figure out, you know, sort of which. Yeah, which. So the prison, because these brothers inside, and, and the sisters too, inside the prison, I mean, we, they, they're doing it from these men's prisons, but this affects, we want it to affect all the prisons, even the youth, youth. Uh, uh, institutions that they have, you know, uh, they, they they be locking them up. I mean, they this practice needs to stop. Mm-hmm. They need sure. to stop this practice that they're doing inside these prisons. Mm-hmm. Right. You yeah. know, they need to stop it. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to thank all of you for joining us. Uh, any any closing remarks before I play this um, short uh, piece um, from Freedom Archives on George Jackson? Any closing Not comments? Now, power to the people. Come mm-hmm. on, oh, power to the people. Okay, thank you all for joining us. Thank you, Wanda. Oh, you're welcome. Peace and blessings. Peace and blessings. All right. Saturday, August 21st, 1971. Today at about 3 p.m. there was an attempted break from our adjustment center, which is our maximum security facility. George Jackson was killed as he broke and ran outside the adjustment center. Well, I could die tomorrow, but uh, there'll be a two or three hundred people to take my place. This is one black man they're not going to murder and sweep under the rug, unless they murder me too.
I want to mention that uh, the piece that I thought I was playing on the um, George Jackson, actually there's a longer piece. I just played the little commercial. Uh, there's a longer piece, 29-minute radio documentary um, about the origins of the modern anti-prison movement, and it's called 30 Years After the Murder of George Jackson. And you can listen to it free, download it at freedomarchives.org, which is a really wonderful uh, archive and resource for people who are interested in liberation movements and freedom and justice. So definitely I encourage you to go to the website, freedomarchives.org, and you can click on George Jackson and you can find the piece that I was trying to share with you. <laughs> well, thank you, King, for staying with us on the air, and thank all you so right, much for joining you. us all, all right, the way from Austin. All right. All right, Wanda. <laughs> all right, you take good care. <laughs> all right, you too. I'm going. Peace and blessings. I'll all righty. All right. Yeah, bye. I have you on. We're going to do be doing the um, the Hurricane huh? Katrina fundraisers. I mean, um, report back. So we'll be talking to you in about a week, a week what? and a half. Is that yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, remember? <laughs> uh, okay, you guys. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, August twenty sixth. We're going to have you on. I'll totally remind you. <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot. All right. Sure. You take care. Right. Have a great day. You too. Okay. Bye. Peace and blessings. Bye bye. All right. So I'm going to play another piece from um, this uh, CD, Women in Africa. It's on Putamayo. It was a birthday present I received a long, long time ago, and I just love every every track on there. And this one here is uh, Nawal, who's from the Comoros Islands in Africa. And this piece is called Hema. And, uh, and then we're out. Until next time. Again, we're going to have a special broadcast on Thursday, which is tomorrow, August 18th, and we're going to rebroadcast one of the uh, either today or tomorrow's show on Friday, the 20th.
there's never been a better time to switch to Sprint. Right now, when you switch to Unlimited, we'll give you your fourth and fifth lines free. Switch to Sprint Unlimited now and get your fourth and fifth lines free. That's five lines of Unlimited for just $24 per month per line. Visit Sprint.com slash Unlimited or call 1-800-SPRINT-1. Limited time offer after 131-2020. Pay $60 per month per line, $140 per month per line, 2 and $20 per month per line for lines 3 through 5 with auto pay. One Hulu limited commercials plan for eligible Sprint accounts. Excludes taxes, fees, and roaming. Requires new lines subject to credit and through the activation fee. Video streams up to 480p. Speed maximums use. 